I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The following podcast may contain some strong language and adult themes. If you've got young children around, maybe save it until they've gone to bed. If you really don't like bad words, this pod probably isn't for you. Welcome to the Making Up the Numbers podcast. The Making Up the Numbers podcast is sponsored by Hope Technology, JTEC Suspension, Revolution Bike Park, Ride Southern Spain, Schwalbe. From the world's finest independent mountain bike magazine, Single Track. Previously on the Making Up the Numbers podcast. I come through the finish and then obviously I just got myself out of there because I was pissed off. And Aaron Gwynn stopped me in this little tunnel that we had to go through to get out. And I was like, I remember thinking, like, obviously I was annoyed, I didn't want to see anyone. And I remember thinking, why is Gwynny stopping me? Like, and he was like, are you all right, mate? You're, I was like, yeah, I'm fine. He was like, you were on one. And I was like, <laughs> was I? Because obviously I don't know anything. I didn't even look around. Like, yeah, you've just got out of there. Yeah. He went, he went yeah, he went, you were green. And I was like, <laughs> made it worse. I was like, are you fucking serious? So I just went back to our little um, pit at the bottom of the chairlift. And I just sat there on my own, just cried <laughs> and anything, just sat there staring into space for about 20 minutes, um, processing it. So, but that's racing and that's why we love it, I guess. Yeah. yeah, I remember I did the first e-bike, e-cross country in Monsanto the year before, so I yeah. had a bit of a clue on what was going on. <laughs> and I spent the race battling with Lloyd's dad, so... <laughs> <laughs> so I was like... Um, yeah, okay, there's a bit of a difference in some of the uh, motors. And uh, actually, Lloyd's dad had a huge crash because I was, like, cheering him on so much from behind and he went straight over a berm. Oh, but, but Lloyd was like, yeah, you shouldn't be riding around behind my dad. And it was hard for me to understand, like, how all the riders 
like evolve between semi and final or how they manage that and how they improve their time and everything. So like for me, even um, I love that your response to that has just been to just win everything. <laughs> I don't want you. I'll just win fucking all of it. <laughs> Maybe it's uh, the easiest way. I don't know for me, but <laughs> hello and welcome to episode eight of season five. And in this episode. We're going to be opening up the show with some discussions about 2024, the World Cup calendar, and some team rumours. Then we'll be joined by someone who Emmy described on the group chat as more of a legend than Greg Minar, which takes some doing. But the legend that is Martin Whiteley will be joining us. And then it's over to the 2023 downhill world champion, Charlie Hatton. What a show, eh? Let's get cracking. Jack, Emmy, on the day we recorded the last episode, the UCI released the calendar for the 2024 World Cup season. It was a bit late for us to discuss in that episode, but it, it kicks off in Fort William on the 3rd of May and then moves to Poland to a new venue. I'm going to go have a go at pronouncing it. Bielsko Biala. Does that sound about right? Yeah. It sounded pretty good. Then in June, there's rounds in Leogang and Val de Sol. Then July, it's Leger. Then there's a big break for the Olympics before we resume with world champs in Andorra in the final week of August. And then it's on to Luidenville at the start of September, with the season finishing in Monsen and once again at the start of October. The comments on the UCI World Series Instagram from the riders were underwhelming, to say the least. Jackson Goldstone, seven downhill races is sad. Tony Seagrave, six venues I've raced 11 times. Andy Kolb, seven downhill races, yawn emoji, face palm emoji. Brooke McDonald, may as well call our series a French Cup. Initial thoughts from yourselves? Yeah, I mean, um, I hadn't seen Brooks' comment before tonight. Um, that's quite funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's true, isn't it? We were told that with this change of uh, leadership in delivering the World Cup, it was going to be all these uh, glorious things happening, and uh, the calendar next year is, let's just say, far from glorious. I mean, isn't this the original calendar? Because there was a calendar issued, was it around like April, May <laughs> time? And what isn't this it? And then... Th- I heard there were some meetings and there was going to be, everybody thought there was going to be nine or 10 races. Yeah, I, I don't know. I miss probably got more of an idea on that than I do. Not really, actually, because um, the team managers probably, or only a few team managers probably have some more insights, but there's not been a lot of transparency about anything, to be fair. So okay. yeah, I guess that Poland race is going to be exciting. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Um, but at least we have the overseas World Cup, not like the Indoor Terries, who has sick races in all in Europe. So, yeah. We're also big going mad about that. So, no US round. Do you think that's going to change? Because there seems to have been a huge backlash about that in particular. Honestly, don't know how it works. I, I, I assume venues have to tender to host a World Cup. And yeah. that paired with where the organizers want to take the series is if nobody tendered to host one, then, I mean, Hopefully, with Gwynny taking on Windrock, maybe in future years, you might see Windrock wanting to host a, a World Cup. Who knows? But yeah. I would imagine, given it's already November, I, c- I can't see that schedule changing now. No. no. No chance, I think. So, the entire Enduro calendar is in Europe, as you said, Emmy. How are the Pivot guys feeling about that? I haven't really talking to them recently. I think Eddie was in vacation around Mexico somewhere. Yeah. So he wasn't on like planet, but yeah, uh, he posted it straight away in the chat. So 
obviously having six races only and not very like exotic places, it was just like, yeah, yeah. It's it's not the XC schedule, let's put it that way. XC schedule is pretty cool. Yeah, the XC. They've got two rounds in Brazil, one in the States. But yeah, so uh, I would say most of the Enduro riders would be pretty disappointed with that. And um, Eddie especially and, and Matt from New Zealand, they, they had their rounds in Tasmania pretty early. Yeah. So that was like ideal for them, obviously. Yeah. Now it's like... A longer off season for him, which also can be positive because you can stay longer at home. But um, the racing point of view is probably not the best. Does it benefit the team teams a lot? I mean, the costs of just racing in Europe are going to be are they massively less? Probably, maybe. What's one of the reasons why? I, I I don't know because nothing has been explained to whether what is decision is going to be made. So. That could be one for sure. If you have to take positives out of it, that's probably one of the positives. <laughs> <laughs> well, back to the downhill. The rumor is that semi-finals will be no more in 2024, and it'll just be a top 30 qualifier for the men. I'm not sure for the women, but I'd imagine it's either top 15 or top 10 for the women. If that's the case, it's going to be another year of change. But are we at a point now where ESO just need to rip the bandaid off and make all the changes they want? And let's just see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> well, with the riders association, at least we are. Uh, we already talked a little bit about um, what twenty twenty four might look like. We're trying to get in contact with ESO. It's probably a little bit early still. Um, some people are taking some time off, which I understand. Yeah. A bit of a long year. Um, but the goal is ultimately to get in touch with with them as soon as possible and try to discuss it because. Um, there's been already some talks about semifinals in during the season, especially for the women, because obviously it's cutting the field five people from fifteen to ten, which the girls don't understand. Yeah. So um, we've been assessing the question, like voting about who wants which format and how many people should be in there, and then we have like. More of another view what we want to propose to you so if they're open for discussion at least they know what the rider or the top riders want and if you go out of the top rider which will be like 45 top riders they will want more people in there anyway yeah like the top 30 men want 50 plus people in finals you can be sure that people outside of that will want 50 plus as well of course so that's we're trying to like be proactive and see, okay, that's the right to wish for. If ESO wants to like try to negotiate or see, okay, we can try that. We can try. They've done it in the past with a lot of things with like time training. We, they put time training out and then we're like, we want time training back. And then they did that split session where timing is running and then you can do time training. Yeah. And then done that like from one day to another. So that was like shows that. If something is working, they be able to do it. Yeah. So, um, like, I try to go in. We all try to go in there with a positive mindset and try to say, okay, semifinals didn't really work for the viewers, for the riders. So let's try to like optimize the schedule and make it more interesting for everybody. Yeah, when you look at semis and finals this year, like they were obviously trying to improve the viewer package, and they they didn't they just basically spammed it with loads of the same stuff repeating itself throughout the day i think i was talking to someone um i won't i won't say his name but one of the high up media guys 
been on the circuit for ages. He's involved in the team now. And he said he wasn't at one of the rounds and he sat and watched it. And by the end of the day, he lives for downhill. And by the end, he said he was literally just like, he had a headache. He just watched way too much. And just off what Emma's just been talking about there, like I was just sat here thinking, listening to you. And if you scrap the semi, stuck with your top 60 and tried to improve the viewer package in a way where they do a, a version of what they've done this year by giving all of those 60, obviously we're just using the men as an example here. Yeah. If you give all those guys TV time, but started off with say 30 second gaps or 60 second gaps for the top 15 riders and just showed certain camera angles, the commentators are getting warmed up. Some people might just be joining the show. Next 15 riders, two minute gaps, kind of similar to what they used to do, but showing the whole thing. You're going to create more of a buildup as the riders get faster, as you get better camera angles, as the drone shots get fed in to the point where you've then got those last 15 to 10 guys where you're showing the whole run, you're using all of the camera angles, everyone's warmed up to it. Whereas this year, it was like you watched it all once and then you watched exactly the same thing again. Yeah. So I, there's definitely a way they can improve it. Um, but I think you're right, George, like they need to sit down with Emmy and the rest of the riders union and the team managers, and they need to say, right, this is where we want to go over the next five years. And everybody needs to kind of, all the big players need to be involved so that it's not the argumental shit show that it was this year where nobody's happy and everybody's arguing. And, um, yeah, that's my kind of take on it really. Yeah. It can be great. Yeah. Okay. Let, let's do a few 2024 team rumors. Firstly, I think we probably need to deal with the troubles that CRC, Chain Reaction, and, and Wiggle are going. Don't talk to me about that. Why? Bought my dad a Vitus e-bike for his 70th birthday. It turned up late, but during the time it was out for delivery, they went bump. And I was like, oh, no. And it's then arrived and won't turn on. So it's now like gone back on a refund like for warrant, like for a fault. But it was like, fuck, do I send it? Do I not? Am I going to get my money? <laughs> so I'm now just sat here like, Thinking, right, well, might never see that money again. So, yeah, don't talk to you about that. Um, fingers crossed on Friday, I'm going to get my money. But, yeah, happy birthday, Dad. <laughs> oh, that's a nightmare, mate. Like, yeah. If it had turned on, would you have kept it? No, yeah, definitely. Because, like, he, he ju he's just going to potter around on it and it would have gone for a while. And, yeah, so. Yeah. Well, I imagine, you know, the troubles there having will have a huge impact on Continental Nuke Proof and possibly Newtproof SRAM as well. Emmy, I know you have the, the Continental connection there. Have, have you heard anything? I haven't heard anything and I haven't asked. Um, there's some rumours about they're just going to continue running. Obviously, it was on the move somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they might have some budget left me for another rider. Maybe they're just staying that, that way. And my guess is just they're going to try to have another frame sponsor. Yeah. It's not the easiest time to beat that, <laughs> make that switch, but especially losing Ronan. Yeah, yeah. Veronica had a really amazing end of season, so maybe that will motivate some people. I know Conti is very like they're very um, faithful to their teams, so they might help out to with the connection to find if they need to find another frame sponsor. Yeah. I think that would be alright, but yeah, I haven't seen anything. Louise Ferguson, somebody sent me a picture of her with a YT the other day. I don't know. Louise is um, is someone that aspired to maybe do maybe other things than racing World Cups only. Yeah. So she wants to race Quankworks. She wants to do formation. She wants to do that type of event. Yeah. I don't know if that team will be the right fit. So that's the reason why I would say maybe Louise might move because 
of the problem they have and also the fact that she wants to race in like other races that maybe they don't like they don't align with their interests so yeah well shout out to Brayton and all the mechanics and all the teams yeah. who, who, who might lose the backing for for 2024 one thing we didn't talk about on the last episode was Cade not racing the last world cup due to in his world word sponsor bullshit jack it's probably the thing i've been messaged most about in the history of making up the numbers do you know what went on I've only got second-hand information. I haven't spoke to Cade, and I, I did actually reach out to him today, but I've let, obviously left it too late, and he's not had a chance to get back to me ahead of the podcast. Um, it, maybe for the next podcast, might have uh, might have had some. I just asked him if he had a statement on kind of a few yeah. things that were knocking around about him about whether he was still racing World Cups, what went on with the helmet, how his kind of future looked with Trek, and uh, wanted to get a bit of a statement from him rather than kind of uh, you know putting words in his mouth. Yeah. But I didn't hear back. But yeah, I mean. All I heard was second-hand info about something that went on at Snowshoe with a crash and then was riding a different helmet, whether it was because it was a Red Bull helmet that he needed to have on. Yeah. I literally don't know, but something went on and he decided not to ride. So I think I've seen a picture of him riding with Jackson's spare helmet. Yeah, so now this is the thing. Was it because he felt he needed to have a Red Bull lid on and yeah. wouldn't ride with a non-painted lid? Obviously, we're over there, so how many spare helmets did he have with him? Yeah. Or was it that he didn't want to ride the brand of helmet that he'd had a crash in? Do not know. Could it be either one of those? And do we know if he, if that was his last race for Trek? I heard he was staying with Trek, but wasn't going to be racing World Cups anymore. But again, it was just gossip. It wasn't from Cade. So rumours abound that Mondraker are creating their own factory program with Ryan Pinkerton, Ronan Dunn and Dakota Norton. If that's true, that, that that would be a hell of a team, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Maybe Jess is going to be on there. What is Jess doing? We want to know, Jess. Like, <laughs> was, I don't mention I'm it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you not allowed to say anymore. But um, yeah, maybe. I, I had heard she was on there, but again, second-hand info. Yeah. And that would be cool, though. That would be, that would be a team with like, you could be good in the team overall with that. With that, yeah. um, that it's going to go one way or the other, isn't it? All three of them are like, all you know, four on, of them are, are wild. Yeah. yeah, on their day, they're, they're going to deliver, but it's not always their day. They're not the most consistent, the riders, throughout the season. I mean, it's pretty unfair on Ryan. He did have a solid block in the middle of the season, but he's young. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And if that's the case, where do you think the MS Mondraker riders go? There's Brooke, there's Toby Meek, there's David Summer. Conversation with one of them. Um, won't say who, but I was told that um, J- uh, Jacob, David, and Tahoto are going with MS. Um, and rumor is, as you say, that they're going to be partnering up with Intense. I didn't actually say that, but it's in the script. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, you go. Well, no, I did hear that. It was an intense kind of yeah. um, MS connection. That rider told me they weren't sure what. Um, Brooke and Toby and uh, Farina were doing. So, yeah, interesting. Be a good team, though. Yeah. yeah. So it has been flying. Yeah, it's quite a big... Um, you forget how many riders MS Mondraker had. There's the six there, isn't there? That's quite yeah. a big team. Yeah, when we heard it was separating, we were like, shit, where are they all going to go? Yeah. yeah. So if they take over Intense and Dax going to Mondraker, sir, what happens with Aaron? Good question. Do you know anything, Jack? All I've all I heard again was well, it wasn't whispers actually. This was from someone who knows Aaron, but it was just a passing comment of highlighting the fact Aaron's got other things in his life now. You know, he's married, and we've now just seen he's bought the bike park. Aaron's older than me, I think, and I'm 35 in December. So who knows when they're going to want to start a family? Like 
I'm just joining the dots here and thinking he's either going to find a way to come out swinging next year and have one last push at it, yeah. or he's going to look at the level and go, you know what? I think I'm done. Um, yeah. I know he's been enjoying the team manager role. Will he want to continue with that and do his own program? Who knows? But, um, you know, he's good friends with Nico. Maybe, maybe he'd be involved there. Well, that's yeah, a question. I that maybe. Yeah. That's a question for our next guest. For later. Definitely. Yeah, for later. Definitely told me, though, that because obviously of the commentary and I also commenting on Swiss TV and I was like, oh, and he said, yeah, they want to make him an offer, but he was like, yeah, I want to be riding. So yeah. I think, yeah, like you said, Jack, maybe he wants to be like back riding and try to like do one last push, like crazy season. But yeah, if he doesn't have like the right setting to do it, yeah, exactly. Can I just say as well, on top of everything I've just said, if he does retire, I, I will be really sad. Yeah. Like, it would be so, so cool to see like a, a proper Gwynny season that we hoped we were going to see this year before he hurt himself. So yeah, I wouldn't blame him if he does pull a plug because it's, you know, for me, it's been, the decision's been perfect. I know we're totally different levels, but um, if he decide to stay in, I'd be so happy to see him carry on. Even if he did a, like Pete, did a last season you know, this is going to be my last season and go around, yeah, which yeah. I, I, I imagine Greg's going to do, you know, it's not going to be a just like get to the end of the season and go see, uh, you know, when you've been that great, hundred percent, you got to do a, a yeah. kind of bit of a tour and say, say goodbye. And you, 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 you can kind of claim that. I think, um, Laurie Greenland, possibly off the syndicate was an early rumor with a couple of offers on the table. I heard there's only a handful of consistently top five guys and he's one of them but at the same time it probably need to be a big team to prize him away any ideas well you're about to mention it in a minute there's an opening at cube nobody's speculated on who's going there and i think cube got loads of money haven't they but i haven't no i haven't like so i've heard that they might not have a welcome team at all i don't know Whoa. i've really? said that before and i'm someone wow, yeah. really angry but like um because i know <laughs> Well, maybe they have a World Cup team, but it wasn't very sure how many riders and it's going to continue the same. Um, Danny, we don't know. I spoke to Max and Max told me he was staying. Right. I know they're doing, they're doing like a, a used t- a structure as well. Right. Um, but I'm not sure which capacity of like juniors or like really, really, really young people for okay. like rookies cup or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, cool if this is staying, but I don't know if they are like have loads of money or whatever, but yeah, maybe someone could go on there for sure. Canyon? Is it Canyon's contract year? I don't know. Like, I haven't heard anything about that team changing. No, because Millie signed last year, right? So I would be surprised if she signed only for one year. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe she did. Yeah, I'm not sure. Ethan Crack to Scott? Yeah, I mean, there's got to be changes at Scott. I've heard Gonzalo's going there as well, Val. Um, yeah. They gave him a bit of a shot and obviously he was performing well. So, yeah. Um, yeah. As you've just said, Danny Hart currently without a ride for next season, as far as we're aware, which seems absolutely bonkers to me. Someone, Danny's got to get a ride. Well, it just shows the state of play at the moment, doesn't it? Danny's Danny's 32, which is, which is young, but in yeah. our sport, it's, as we'll chat with Martin later, it, essentially that's now quite old in the sport. Yeah. And with all these youngsters coming through with so few seats to sit on, I mean, look, Gwynny's, where's Gwynny going to ride next year? Like, So Danny's told me that everyone he spoke to was coming up way short on their offers on what he is comfortable riding for. And he was weighing up the option of setting up his own thing. And 
was them looking at that and thinking out, you know, so well, do you know what? Those are the times are changing. It's, uh, yeah. he, he would have been such a good fit with new proof as the next move for him that I could see him going, you know, with Sam went there, yeah. like a big name of the sport. I could see Sam must be coming to, towards the end now. I wonder how much money new proof is still spending on Sam. I was thinking about this. Yeah. Like, yeah. obviously, Hill's a legend of the sport, like unbelievable rider. Yeah. But the last couple of years, getting a bit quieter, tried to come back to down all this year, didn't work. And you do wonder how much money has been going into that pot. And like you say, if Sam did decide to retire yeah. and new proof weren't in the financial situation they've just gone into, maybe that would have opened up a seat yeah. for a huge rider to fill. Emmy, I'm going to have to mention it because it's all over the vital forum. Dorval AM Commonsal closing down and Cami going to pivot. Any truth in that at all? We heard that before, didn't we? <laughs> I think yeah. people just make that up It's because of your connection. Yeah, I guess they don't know Cam well because it's probably, Cam loves to hang out with Pivot, but I don't think they'll be a good match with Bernard. They'll <laughs> <laughs> be too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, no. Like they signed through. Yeah. Most of them. All of them, probably. Yeah, I spoke to Baptiste in Monsignan and he said everything was as it was. Cool. Yeah. Well, a man with some exciting team news that I'm aware of is Martin Whiteley, and we'll be talking to him after these messages. My name is Amory Pion, and I asked Trelby to develop the best Donald tyre ever. Amory asked us for something that offers a edge over Magic Mary. We are all looking for something new, I guess. We needed something for more precision. So from that, we just worked all together to, to make it happen. Being fair, actually, the team started the development. Maxime, he started to cut down a big betty and try to get it into shape to make it work. The grip is just perfect. The Takichan just gives you the best precision you, you need. It just gives you a lot of braking traction, safety, and corner hold. It's like riding on rails. So. If you're an active rider, it's super rewarding. If you're a passive rider, it's still a fantastic time. From the suspension experts at JTEC Suspension comes WPS, an all-new brand focused on making the very best suspension upgrades, parts, and tooling, all made in the UK. With a growing network of the very best suspension service centers in the UK and beyond, and drawing on years of experience, WPS is the best thing that ever happened to your suspension. To find out more, visit WPS-MTB.com. I've trolled through my emails, and I first emailed our next guest to ask if, to ask if he'd come on the show on Monday the 2nd of December 2019. Nearly four years later, I finally convinced him, and I know we're all delighted to have him. Welcome to the show, Mr. 23 Degrees, Martin Whiteley. How are you doing, Martin? Good, George. Thanks uh, for being so patient. <laughs> yeah, I've never waited for, well, I haven't waited for four years for anyone else, so you, you're in your <laughs> a, a league of your own there. Um, so thank you for making the time. For anyone who's unaware, Martin's involvement in mountain biking goes way, way, way back. There's a fabulous two-part podcast with Downtime last year, which details a lot of it, so there's no point us covering the same ground. But I will pull out a few key points as background for anyone who's unaware. 
And uh, correct me if I get any of this wrong, Martin, because I, I, I listened to the downtime pod again last week when I when I knew you were coming on, but then I wrote this afterwards. So, um, In his homeland of Australia in the mid-1980s, Martin started mountain bike racing as a discipline and set up the Australian Mountain Bike Association. He became the CEO of Cycling Australia, then moved to the UCI, where he was the technical delegate for over 100 World Cups, six World Championships and the Sydney Olympics. And during that time, he also discovered a young South African kid by the name of Greg Minar. Upon leaving the UCI, he set up Global Racing and was team director for Team G-Cross Honda. He then went on to manage Trek World Racing with Aaron Gwynn and Tracy Mosley before moving on to the YT Mob with Aaron and latterly produced the YT Mob's World Tour, which discovered Oshino Callahan. Since 2000, he's also run 23 Degrees Sports Management, where he's managed athletes such as Cadell Evans, the Athertons, and Brooke McDonald. It's been an incredible career, Martin, and I wanted to start with a few generic questions. The first one, perhaps you could just give us your favorite memory from the Global or global and Honda years. Yeah, I, I think for me, you know, Global and Honda are very different memories because Global was my first team and I really didn't have any experience. Um, we went with a team that we put together in nine weeks and ended up winning the overall with Greg Minara and Monsanan when, you know, Yanni. He only really won the overall in the last race. He was second going into it, and he had to beat Nick Lavoglio. Missy finished second to the great Aaron and Caroline Chasson, and uh, we won the team overall. So to do that in our first year was very, very impactful for me and my career, my fledgling career as a team manager. And, um, you know, without that year, I don't think I would have had the career I had. So as a moment or, a, you know, I guess a great week really in Monsignan was for us for 2001. And for Honda, it was more... I mean, there were a lot of great memories with Honda because it was so unique and different working with someone that was out of industry technically and, and learned so much. We were working with the Honda Racing Corporation, not with Honda Motorbikes or the Honda Company. So it was with a racing company, learned a lot from how they managed their business. Um, but the very first testing session, we were with Showa and Honda up in the forest in Narang behind Nathan Rainey's house, pretty much testing the Hondas and just sort of standing back and looking at all coming together going, this is so different. This is, I don't think anyone's really going to believe this when they see this. And, <laughs> yeah. and it was a very difficult time for Greg because he just won the world championship the year before for Haro on a multi-year contract. And we had to get him out of that contract to join Honda. And it was again, a lot of people said, you know, why are you doing that? You've already proven you can win on the Haro, which was an intensive course. And why are you doing it? And, um, so there was a big risk for him as well. So yeah, that was a thing that sort of butterfly stomach moment you get where you think you're on the verge of something pretty special. Yeah. Yeah, that's what that was like. Cool. So, and favourite memory from the Trek World Racing years? Um, I think, without a doubt, the run we had with Aaron and Tracy, you know, we were, we were pretty unstoppable with those two for, for a lot of the races we entered in the first two years. But also to be able to put together a cross-country and downhill team together, something I'd really aspired to with, you know, Volvo Canada was one of my favourite teams when I was the UCI technical delegate. I really admired what they did. And I actually, after Honda, went looking for a brand that had competitive bikes in downhill and cross country at the time to build something like Volvo Cannondale. So to get Matthias Flukiger and um, cross country success as well as um, downhill success, you know, but I don't think there's one specific moment. I think Tracy winning her world championship in 2010 was very special. She had been wanting to do that for so long and finally finally did it it was very emotional and yeah i think that probably be a standout memory for me yeah and then the yt years um 
again, I think round one, race one, you know, with Aaron Gwynn and Lords, you know, this, I don't think that's really happened before where a brand has entered the World Cup for the first time and won their first race. And we were lucky that Loic had a bit of a fall. Um, we were, our target was a podium. Um, but win, you know, that first race, first place mottos on the wall and the YT room here, it was a very, and that bike is here. It was a very special time, I think, for everybody to have Marcus and Stefan from YT in the Finnish arena when that happened. How yeah. could you imagine it? So we were looking at a bit of a ramp up, but we didn't think we'd start off there. And of course, that whole period with Aaron on YT was very special. Um, so yeah, great, great memories. Nice. Well, Mark, great, great to have you on the, on the pod and uh, really nice to hear George list all that stuff off at the start. So a few things there that I, I was unaware of. It's really impressive to to kind of hear that all read out. Um, so let's get it out there at the start because I'm sure we'll, we'll mention it. Um, we didn't touch on it in the team rumors chat, um, but you're back. Uh, tell us about your plans going into 2024. Yeah, I've been on the dole for two years, so it's time to get to work. <laughs> um, actually, you know, I've, I've been working with Nico on frameworks behind the scenes since he started it doing, I've, I've been managing Nico since he was 16. So wow. uh, he, he came to me when he had this idea for frameworks and it was just like, you don't discount him. This is a guy that, you know, when he puts his mind to something, he really does. He's wow. extremely authentic in every single sense. And um, so we've been working on it behind the scenes, just doing the paperwork for him, helping him do the sponsorship contracts and so he could focus on the bike development, frame development. And so he came to me the, uh, I think just after, may have been just before Snowshoe this year, actually, said, here's a bunch of things I need you to do for me next year. Are you able to do it? And I looked at him and said, man, that's, that's a job description for a team manager. You know, apart from being in the race, you're getting me to do flights, hotels, sponsorships, you know, all that yeah. sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, why don't we try and figure out a way where we can do this? Plus with Asa coming on board, we really need to make sure that this is a home he wants to stay at and you have to be, you know, a well-oiled machine for an athlete to want to stay. I look at Loic and Laurent and to say, look, there's a partnership that's been there forever. And yeah. I know you want to develop that with Asa, but you can't be running around doing everything yourself You and racing. You've got to have someone at the finish line, handing the, and the, the guy, his glasses, taking care of any anti-doping registration, all that stuff. So, you know, I'd like to get back on the circuit again, and this is a great chance for us. You know, we'll be a three-rider team. That's the plan. Third rider not yet announced, but we're very close this week. And um, so, yeah, three riders, two mechanics, team manager, and I'm basically the team cook. I'll be doing a lot of the cooking in as well. Can <laughs> <laughs> you tell us what category that third rider is going to be riding in, or are you keeping everything close? Um, elite man at this stage. Nice, nice, and uh, he's been to the World Cup podium, so it's not it's Ooh, not a beginner. Right, cool. Well, as you may have heard on the most recent episode of the podcast, I, I apologise to Jess Blewett because the rumour I heard was that you were going to manage the propane factory team with Jess on board as as the elite female rider. How much truth was there in that rumour? Was was, I, was it miles off? Um, the words Jess manage Blewett and propane are all in the right sentence, just not in the right order. <laughs> So, so yeah, I mean, you know, it's no secret we managed Jess Blewett now, and yeah. we're, we're, we've we've found her a ride um, that'll be announced soon. Yeah, um, I was under contract with Propane for nearly two years to develop their next race program, um, but I like a lot of the industry right now. You know, it's not the easiest time to start a big team, and they wanted to do it on a scale. Um, I mean, 
and will even know that I reached out, you know, to to Cami and, and lots of writers last year. We were we were working to put something together, and um, just it's not the right time, but it will come, and uh, you know we'll see when that happens. But um, in the end, uh, they've decided to defer, and and it is a difficult time with everybody right now. I'm not in that industry. In, in a great way, in the sense that I don't understand all of the current situation with investors and stock and all the stuff people are going through, but it is a tough time. And uh, as we see from a couple of teams stopping at the end of this year. So, you know, we, we would love to see propane back on the circuit again, and, uh, and they do have big plans. So that's, it just wasn't a rider for that program. Uh, we were looking at someone else at the time, or a couple of other riders, um, but Jess has got a, a new home and they'll announce that very soon. Nice. That's what's signed and done. So, I mean, Acer looks like being another fantastic talent. It's been interesting tracking his results in America over the last couple of years, um, ready for the World Cups next year. You obviously discovered Greg Menard, Angel Suarez, and recently Ocean O'Callaghan. So obviously you've got a fantastic eye for picking that talent. What is it you look for at that young age? Is there anything that you look to stand out in a rider? I heard this is a, I do get asked this a lot, and it's really it comes down to a gut instinct. In fact, Oshin is a good example of that. He he came to our finals camp, and on his first run on our track, fell off and sprained his wrist and was out for the whole camp. So this was the camp to decide which of these eight riders would become the final two. One was on paper, and one was a gut instinct, and. So it was a bit of an experiment to see which one really does pan out. And, and it turned out it was Oshin. I mean, the first race he did, he won the world title. It was, you know, if he'd written that, no one would believe. So it's a gut instinct with Manara was the same. I saw him in 97 at the World Cup there in Stellenbosch. He went to the Worlds in 97. That's when you could do that when you're a 16 year old. I think he was 15 and a half. Yeah. He didn't do well. And I forgot about him, but I saw him again the next year. Again, Stellenbosch, and it just clicked. You just knew that this kid had something. The way they ride, their physical stature. He was a skinny little bugger, but he was tall. But he was his nickname was Lighty, so he wasn't really considered a powerful rider. So if you've got riders who do well at a young age when they're not physically strong, like a Nathan Rennie or something like that, you know there's room for growth. Yeah. Um, there are always bigger riders who do well in the junior category that peter out a bit later on. So there's that. There's the family environment. You know Why are they in it? What got them into it? Is their heart really in it? Um, and then there's just this sort of innate ability on a bike where they look at one with a bike at a very young age. It's like the wheels are an extension of their body. They just look really at home on a bike. But honestly, jacket, I wish I could bottle it and, and sell it. I don't really know. I've been not, I think, to be in the right place at the right time when these people come along. Uh, and with Cadell, you know, when I saw him at 14, there's no way I would have known he's going to win the Tour de France. There's just no. Yeah. But you, 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 and, and, you know, there's been riders, you know, that I've worked with that haven't worked out. So it's not always been like that. Um, you know, Laurie's a good example of one we found when he was quite young. Again, looked at him on results, British results when he was in the category under junior. I don't know what you call it in the UK, but the under 16s and saw that he was doing really well in Fort William, an extremely physical track when he was quite small. So he knew he had the ability. So yeah, it's, it's just a, even like Chris, Chris Hauser from Italy, um, reached out to him before the world cup started because of his IXS results. And, um, you know, you just have a, there's the results, there's, and then there's the other little factors that come into it. But I, yeah, I couldn't really put my finger on it. Otherwise we'd all be doing it. 
Yeah, for sure. George has made a little note here about um, second and only child theory. And obviously there's the little theory that first children are leaders, second children take more risks and can be better races. Are you familiar with that? And do you kind of take any, any heed to it or? I totally agree with it. Like I, I had, I had nine riders on global racing. They're all only children or the youngest. And, uh, and that was my first indication. You know, Manar's the youngest born, you know, by the time, and I'm an eldest born, so I know that I had to break a lot of boundaries from my brother and sister, you know, how late I could stay out, things I could do. And then when mum and dad went to go out for dinner, they'd say, take care of your brother and sister. So you're given this management role, even as a, a 10 or 12 or 14 year old. So I've seen that in uh, cross country riders are far more tended to be the elder child. They're far more organized. They're They've got protocols that they stick to, and the downhillers just seem to have, I don't know, there's just been this attitude of just go out and enjoy yourself and see what happens. And I, I don't know, it's, it could be just coincidence, but nearly every single rider I've ever managed or had on a team has been an only child or a youngest or second youngest. So it's, it's weird. If you go to CEOs of companies, most of them are firstborn. Yeah, okay. Interesting. So 2023 has been an incredible season. Just run through and run, running through it. Eight male winners from nine races, including world championships. Uh, the two first year elites, Jordan and Jackson, that we've all talked about so much, both winning and Jackson winning two races. It does seem like it's becoming more of a young man's sport. Um, is that a pattern you're recognizing as well? If Andy Cobb and Benoit hadn't won this year, I would probably say yes. I, I, you know, and Manas still knocking on the top 10 door if he isn't having a mechanical. I, it's, 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 it's hard to say. I think, um, yeah, look, you could look at the stats of that across any of the last five years and draw a different conclusion. I don't really, I, I think there's opportunities now for younger riders more than ever, but I think with the junior category, it's, it's given the opportunity for young riders to experience the world cup for a couple of years before being launched into elite. Whereas before. When Loic was racing, he was in the elites as a junior, and it's hard to find yourself when you're sitting 45th or something like that. So I think um, the junior categories for both men and women is really helping the sport give the younger riders a, a stronger sense of awareness about what World Cup racing is and what to expect when they go up the hill. You know, they, they have that chance, um, more, more of them do so. But I, don't, I wouldn't draw a direct conclusion. If the, all the races this year were won by under 23-year-olds, yeah, I'd probably draw that, but yeah. I don't think it is. And, and then you have to go a bit further than that because not every win has been completely, you know, a straight-out win. There might have been some other factors where someone who was leading crashed, who was older, who if stayed up, might have won. You know, there are things like that. So it's a bit hard to draw a, a conclusion, I think. Basically, the old one is still in the fight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Look, it's it's not like an endurance sport. I think you know it's it's more anaerobic, and I think that allows you know older riders to stick around longer. It's just a matter of you know injury, reflex, a few other things that can have yep. an impact later. Um, and if you avoid those, like Greg has, then then and you still have the burning desire to win bike races, which you know as you get older, things like mortgage, kids, things like that are in the back of your mind and do I really want to be in a neck brace while I've got these things going on? So that, that, that's, you know, the human brain is always evolving and, and, and I think that affects our sport too. Yeah. One thing I've been apparently aware of over the last, I don't want to put a number on it, but definitely since COVID is that the young guys coming through now, 
they're not just good racers, but they're so skillful and they learn those skills at such a young age. And I'm seeing it with a lot of the kind of young guys I coach that they're just unbelievable bike handlers at such a young age. And I think it's partly the fact that now this generation are coming through, they're bred to race, their dads race, their families ride bikes, and they're almost born into it. Whereas certainly when I started, I'm 34 now. And when I started mountain biking, I just rode down fire roads with my dad and it wasn't my main sport. Whereas now there are so many kids where downhill is their main sport at like 12 years old. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, the, the growth of bike parks and things like that, where parents can take their kids to a place that has a facility for them has really helped. Um, I, I do remember, I think it was towards the end of my time at the UCI where we'd lost major sponsorship. Um, that the sport was really suffering. And I remember Missy turning to me and saying in 2001, most parents now aren't encouraging their kids to get into downhill. They're getting them into motocross because that's where the money is. But so, you know, there were, there were parents who were making some sorts of decisions based on what's the possibility of my kid doing well in this and making a career out of it. And downhill yeah. is not it because there's no TV, there's no sponsorship and it's, and it's dying. Now there's, I think with Aaron in the US, and uh, the UK, and we're seeing the girls coming from New Zealand now, and uh, all new growth coming through thanks to the coverage of the sport over the last ten years, thanks to Red Bull. And yeah. I think it's given you know the the sport a real kick because it used to be just the Frenchies versus everyone else, and now there's any nationality you can pick to the podium. You know, Colombian, Venezuelan. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, definitely. So. You've only had 30 winners at the men's elite overall in the last 30 years. Um, Lloyd took it again this season. His record is phenomenal. Six times world champion, three times world cup champion, 29 years old now. Um, if you had to rank him in a kind of greatest of all time list based on his current achievements, where would you be putting him? Number four, I think. Okay. Interesting. Who's above him? Um, and the reason I say that was how long it took him from his worst from giving the world championship to his first World Cup win. Yeah. That took a long time. Um, clearly, Greg, I think, and I think Nicola Vuillard, number two, if he'd stayed on, he retired very young in his mid-20s, 20, late 20s. He could have gone on to win a lot more. Um, and it's arguable whether it's Steve Peat or, or Loic Bruni in third or fourth. Um, yeah. I think Steve Peat's number of World Cup wins, or, or Aaron Wynn. You know, I think Aaron Wynn hasn't won a World Cup, a World Championship, but he's won. 20 damn World Cups, you know, that's that's pretty impressive. And when you look at the list of World Cup winners, more than half of only one won in men's, you know, so yeah. it's very hard to win two, almost impossible to win five. He won 20. So for me, okay, he hasn't won a world championship. That is a big negative on his side. He's won a lot of overalls, uh, yeah. five overalls. So yeah, I'd probably, I'd still put Loic around Floyd. I'd either be behind, you know, uh, Greg, Nico and Aaron, and then Loic or Petey, as same as Loic. It's just uh, Petey's won a lot of World Cups as well. Definitely. It's a solid five. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're the five. Um, but there's people knocking on that door, you know, like Armory and Loris, so they're not far away. Definitely. So when Rachel and Aaron were, were winning, it kind of felt like they were dominating the sport. And despite us, despite us living through the Loic Bruni era, it kind of doesn't feel like he's dominated. Um, how did it feel when Nico and Anne Caroline were, were racing? Was it similar to when Aaron and Rachel were winning or, or did it feel different back then? No, it felt the same. It, I, you know, I was concerned as the UCI 
person responsible for sport and the TV coverage that everyone was tuning in and getting Shoemaker syndrome, you know, that it's the same winner every week and why do I bother tuning in if it's not going to be exciting? So we were, you know, and even with Aaron doing so well on our teams, especially at the track time, we even had internal conversations in our team about how good is this for us really that he's winning everything, you know, are the fans going to start to get fatigued, you know, winner fatigue with this? Does it start to have an impact? And, and I see it now with Max Verstappen in Formula One or whenever there's a big dominance, the sport starts to ask us questions and we're not thankfully in that right now, but Anne Caroline was, you know, unstoppable. It was almost, you'd, she'd really have to have a mechanic or an unusual off the bike or something like that for someone else to win. So Nico was, I don't think Nico was that dramatically um, different for equipment or skill level. He was just far more dedicated. I think he was before a lot of other people doing the gym work and doing the physical work, having people on the course doing section splits times. He was having people on the course all the way down, giving him up or down on his splits. So, you know, that was ahead of its time. Um, when you think about it, we're the only time trial in cycling that doesn't inform the rider during the event where they're standing. If yep. you're in a road team time trial or a road uh, individual time trial or on the track in a pursuit, you know where you stand, but in downhill you don't until the finish line. So, um, you know, that's something that Nico used to do a lot. And I'm sure a couple of the Frenchies are probably doing it now. I see the coaches do it at the world champs. Um, we tried it with lap boards, like in motocross to give it an indication to a rider, like if you were able to tell Sam Hill before that fateful crash of Valdesoli that you're seven seconds up, you've got it in the bag. You don't need to take the risk on the last two corners. Would he have taken that advice? You know, if you gave him a pit board saying, you know, triple arrow green, yeah, you know, you don't need to do anything. So we we tried it on track world racing, and there are some riders who can. I'm, I'm wandering a bit here, but there are some riders who can take that information on board and process it and not panic, and then there are others who panic with it. So you. You don't tell them. But I think Nico was someone who was very good at consuming information during his race run. And he also knew the difference between a third of a second and an eighth of a second. I used to sit in the airport with Manar with a stopwatch and, and click it and just say, how quick was that? Was that a second? Was that half a second? Was it a third? Because that's who you're racing. You're racing time. You're not racing Kavari. You need to know when you lose time on a corner, can you make that up or is that too much of a risk? Yeah. Nico was really, he actually came into the timing truck in Big Bear and challenged the timing company because he knew what his time was, that they got it wrong. So he, he had a feel for it and, uh, he, he was wrong in that case, but he was confident enough in his own ability to read time. So that's why I think made him stand out really was his understanding of the sport in the true sense that he's racing the clock, Matt Miles Rockwell. Yeah, for sure. Obviously the strength and depth in the fields now is obviously the highest it's been but we do have two super talents in both the men's and the women's with valley and jackson do you think either of them can be as dominant as aaron and rachel were in modern racing now well i think the depth is the fact that we had you know as you said eight winners out of nine major events in men's and valley wasn't invincible this year i mean if she'd won every race i mean look at what rachel did what rachel did this year was one of the highlights of the season for me so i think you know, that, and Tani's getting stronger, and I think we'll see her back at full strength. Um, Jess will come back from injury. I think there's a lot of people to challenge Valley, but I think she's setting the bar higher, and every time that happens, she drags people up with her. I think that's the key, is that it's right. not, I think I know Caroline just 
was so dauntingly impressive that others were just intimidated. We're almost like, well, I'll race for a second because you just can't beat her. But um, I don't think the level, I don't think that there's such a huge disparity there. And Jackson, he's, he's still so young and, and, he, and we don't know where he's going to go with all this. You know, it's hard to say. But no, I, I don't feel personally that there's, we're going into an era of dominance. I think it's as, as, you know, when you say eight out of nine, actually there were probably another five who were so close to getting their first win as well yeah. in men's. And I think the women's depth, when you look at the junior women's field now, it's uh, more and more it's going to be like that for the women. I, I don't remember a stronger period in women's no. downhill. No. Cool. So, Martin, you were part of the mountain bike boom in the 90s. You saw the move from Freecaster to Red Bull and now to ESO Discovery. I came to your HQ in, in February and we chatted and you allayed many of my fears about the move to ESO Discovery. Has the first season been as up and down as you expected it would? Yeah, I think, look, this is a massive project to undertake. I think there may have been some underestimation um, from ESO or WBD on some aspects of it. But in general, um, TV product looked pretty good. Image-wise, I think the images from Leger were impressive and uh, the big bosses of Warner Brothers were at that event. You know, the guys that oversee everything, and they were really amazed. And so, you know, but there were things that were deficient and there's no question. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm very lucky that it's, I can chat to Chris Paul pretty much whenever I want or need to. I have a call book with him next Tuesday and he's very open to listening to criticism, constructive and ways to improve things. Um, I, I, you know, I think I have to be optimistic. This is a sport in which I operate a business, so I don't want it to collapse. I'm, I'm cheering for it just to to succeed so that all of the play, um, players in it, you know, the athletes, the, the teams, the sponsors, the fans all get to uh, enjoy a great sport. So I don't, I'm not, you know, hoping for it to fail at all. I, I need it to be successful for everybody, but yeah, there are always things to improve. There's no question. And if you go back to the very first broadcasts of Rebel and we rewatch those, they're, they're, they're terrible by, by comparison to their last broadcasts. Um, we're already ahead of those and, and so can only get better. Um, I think, you know, drone coverage has greatly improved, but yeah, there are things I would definitely change, but it's, it's not my, on my ship, but I would definitely change a couple of things. Okay, Martins. It's been interesting to hear you talk about, um, these changes because obviously for the riders as well, there'd be huge changes, um, to the format and everything. We'll, we'll come to that later. Um, do you have any issues with the UCI seemingly like hanging over so much control to of the sport actually to a TV company, or do you feel that was like a next logical step? I think it's I think it's funny that you know like for f the five years I was the team rep for Downhill, we were all asking the UCI to get out of the sports management, sports marketing business, and find a company to run it for them. Like the order runs MotoGP and, and a separate company runs Formula One aside from fear. Get out of the business and let someone else run it for you. That's what we we're asking them to do because they were doing a sports federation's job. They're not a company. They're, okay. they're, a, they're a sports federation. They're not, um, you know, that's not their primary business. So we felt they weren't doing the best job of managing and marketing the World Cup. It had very few sponsors. 
And so we were asking them to get out. So when they finally do, everyone's saying, well, why'd you do that? <laughs> and, and, and the World Cup was at its most successful when the UCI wasn't managing and marketing. It was when Grundig was the sponsor. Grundig set up a marketing company. In fact, the initials were AMC, a marketing company. And that company ran it. They ran the TV production. They did the installation of all the sponsorships. They did everything. And then they paid a license fee to the UCI. They paid the prize money to the athletes and they took care of the rest. And that's when it was at its most successful. We're on Eurosport and we were doing really, really well. Sponsors like MTV and Jeep and 1 million Swiss francs prize money overall. So it was, it was big. And that's because someone else ran it and they, their success depended on whether or not they brought in the money to fund it. So our worst years were when the UCI tried to do it by itself. And so we argued for it. And now that we've got it, we can't say we don't want it. We've got to make it work. And it's there for eight years. So there's no point yeah. jumping up and down and hoping it's going to disappear if we make a lot of noise or it's there. And we work with them. And, and I've found, like I said, Chris Ball, very open to hear ideas. We sat down for half an hour in uh, Glentrust during the cross-country worlds. Uh, then we also had another chat on the phone just recently and another one next week. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that they're malleable enough to recognize when there are problems and how to try and address them. Some things are out of their control. Um, some things are governed by the UCI and they can't change. Uh, but we've got to focus on what we can. Um, do you actually know where viewers' numbers are compared to, for example, where they were with Red Bull? Do you have any, any stats on that? I think all the team managers got some, uh, uh, probably around Val Nord time for the first period. Um, what I do know is the, the highest rated mountain bike event ever was the short track women's in another Mesto. Yeah. Bigger than Olympics, bigger than anything else, because it came straight after a stage of the Tour of Italy. So after the Giro Italia had finished their broadcast on Eurosport, straight, and where they went straight to Nova Mesto for the short track women's cross country. So that had the highest ratings ever at that point. I don't know the rest since then, but um, we are meant to get all those. I haven't seen recent figures, but we are meant to get them. We're meant to get them on a more regular basis. Red Bull would only give them to us like in October, November. There. By then it was a bit too late to put together your sponsorship packages. So that's one of my questions of Chris next Tuesday is where are the figures. But overall, um, I would think they're a lot bigger and a lot stronger than they were. Okay. Um, and you work quite closely with Red Bull as well, researching and preparing data sheets for each race. I remember you telling that on that other podcast as well. Um, even passing statistics um, to the show producer mid-race, is that something that's continued with ESO Discovery or not at all? No, it hasn't. And I'm, I'm you know, champing at the bit to do it. I would love to do it. I think it really helps the fans understand the context of a victory or a result. I mean, when Christian Hauser won his junior World Cup, he was the first Italian to do that since Corrado Aaron, you know, the first in 27 yeah. years. That's a big deal for That's Italy. Big. And, and that needs context. So like statistics are lots of fun. You can do some really good things with them. I mean, it's one thing to have a database. Everyone can have a database with the results in them and you can go look at it and say, okay, what are so-and-so's results for the last eight years? But turning those into a story or into a banner, which is what I want to try and do next year and what I'll ask Chris about, is if we can, when you watch Formula One, it says on this day, Lewis Hamilton won his first ever world championship, da, 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 da. or on this day, it was the first time this race was held or something like that. Or 
important stats, you know, and I think I, I actually contacted Cube to let them know that Valdesola would be Danny Hart's 100th start in a world. They didn't know. I'm sure Danny didn't really know, but that's just what they keep track of. And I think it would be kind of cool. They could have an interview with him and say, this is your 100th start. So they can take the stats and do, you know, pre-race interviews and other features with it, or they can run banners. So I would like to do that again, just because, you know, it's not because it's a big money spinner, but because it's a big thing service to the fans that they have context for results that they know, you know, and, and you've got to get it right too. When you say someone's had 23 World Cup wins when they've had 22, that's not cool. You've got to get it right. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, Neil, it's always been like about that one run on race day. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people feel that way, especially the races. Like, how do you feel about the introduction of semifinals and has that view changed over the course of the season? So it's easy for someone in my position who's been around as long as George described to get sort of stuck in a way and resist change. So at the beginning of the really? season, I wanted to take a deep breath and say, well, let's see how it goes because this is something that hasn't been done before and maybe it is the way forward. But the series have got to go. They're, they're, mm -hmm. they're rubbish, in my opinion. This is a one run against the clocks. It's the big day and all the finals should be on the big day. So we should have our juniors in the morning and our elites in the afternoon. But, you know, I have a different format that I've, you know, been working on for a while. I presented to, to the teams, I think, five years ago. 65% of the teams voted for it, but the UCI didn't accept it. Um, it gets rid of the protected rider system, but it still ensures that the top riders are on TV as well as the best riders on that track on that week. And I would really like to try and push that forward because I think the semifinals does two things for me. It dilutes the impact of downhill racing. Mm -hmm. It's like we all like a glass of wine, but not for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And, and so you've got to look for when you want it. You know, peak with this one thing is the Sunday, the big day. And then the other thing it does, I think, is it increases the chance of, of accidents because the points are so high in the semis that you're taking chances, especially if you're out, if you're not protected and you're really on the bubble. I think we saw a lot more injuries this year than normal. I haven't got the stats, but that's my feeling. Right. But as a fan, I just got kind of, how many races have I got to watch this weekend? You know, it didn't feel that special by the time we got to finals. It, you know, we always resisted. Back in the day, people wanted us to do that motor, like motocross, MX1, MX2, two races in a day kind of thing. Um, and we always resisted that because we said the essence of down racing is the one big run on the, on the, on the day. And, um, and that's why we even moved qualifying from the morning of Sunday to the day before. It used to be the same day. You quali, then you'd race on the same day. So now for me, the, the same is about to go. But, you know, I, they didn't prove to be, I think, a great addition to the sport. Well, at least you're talking about a new format you want to propose. Um, I'm vice president of the Riders Association, so if you want to have the riders' approval on that on that format, you can always contact me, and the rider oh. might really, really like it because I think most of them wants the summit to go as well. So yeah, I I hear that too. I mean, I you know when I saw the uh, the fuck semis sticker on Wynn's microphone, <laughs> you'd see that. There'd been some organization behind that. I, look, I think my, my, my point of view, and I, I developed this format from talking to writers that I manage sure. or work with. It wasn't just, I've got a better idea than everybody else. It's like, I've seen a lot of stuff and I know what gets me jazzed on a fi finals day. 
I do understand that you want to make sure that the, there's a, a fan base for the major stars of the sport. I've always felt at the end of the year, and this is partly what happens now, but if you're a top 10 woman in the world or a top 20 man in the world, you don't really get any recognition for that. There's a few trophies given out for the very top people, but to be eighth in the world in men's downhill racing or seventh in the world in women's downhill racing, there's no recognition for that. So there should be something. So to me, what I, the project's called WC1. It's a bit like a tiered system in MotoGP or Formula One or even football where you have different tiers. So WC1 is the top tier. And so those 20 men and 10 women become WC1 and they're in the finals next year, every race, no question. But who joins them? Well, the next category after that is WC2. And they're the people who are ranked 21 and higher or 11 and higher in the women. And they have their own race on Saturday, which used to be called a qualify, but it's called the WC2 race. And the best 20 men from that join the men, WC1 men on Sunday. And the best 10 women from WC2 join the WC1 riders and they race together on Sunday. So you've got stories of, here's a great rider from this track, you know, does really well on this track and they're in the final. And, um, and the point system would be such that WC1 wouldn't become a closed club. You can earn just as many points in WC2. But it gives the smaller teams a race and a podium on Saturday that they don't normally have. It gives you a good storyline, like here's a rider that came through from Saturday. You know, on Saturday, you'd also have the WC1 doing a seeding run for points, but they're guaranteed on TV. So the fans of Bregman, RM, Gwyn or whatever are going to see their riders, but they're going to see the best 20 others on that same track. So you get 40 for TV. You're not going to get 60 on TV with Warner Brothers. That's not fair. So, you know, so you have to sort of be realistic about the numbers, but I think that gets rid of protection. There's no more like, I'm protected or not. Your WC1 or your WC2. And then, but most importantly, there has to be World Cup qualifier races around the world for people to qualify for World Cups. That doesn't exist right now. It exists in many right. other sports. But you, the UCI needs to nominate on the calendar these races in the US, this one in South America, these two in Australia and New Zealand, these are World Cup qualifiers. If you don't have WC1, WC2 status, you can earn it here. And then you can go to the World Cups. So we don't have that. And I think our calendar really suffers from being a leaning tower of Pisa. We've got all these top races, but very little grassroots stuff on the UCI calendar. There's IXS, Crankworks, not much else. When you look across country, they have hundreds of races. So yes. you know, we need a good feeder system and we need to get rid of protection and we need to get rid of the semifinals and we need to focus on our TV product, all that stuff. But, you know. These can all be fine-tuned things, but this has been in my head for five or six years. Nice. Yeah, re really nice to hear you talking about all that, Martin, and nice to hear you being uh, so frank and so honest about it, to, to be to be honest, because, uh, yeah, it's, it's obviously been a tough year for everyone seeing those changes, and I totally agree with what you said um, about sevens um, from experiencing it myself. It was, uh, it was just basically pointless, like you said. Um, really, really kind of interesting to hear your kind of... Uh, your suggestion there, WC1, WC2. The, the main takeaway I have from it is what you said is missing. Who would be in that WC2 category at the moment? And it is just too easy for people to just turn up at World Cups at the moment. Um, I had a couple of occasions in, I think it was in Vrindon, where I was catching up with riders on the track in Group A. If there was a proper feeder system, they just weren't ready to be at World Cups. It was just way out of their their depth. Um, and I, yeah. I think there is there is there is nothing to stop the Zimbabwe Cycling Federation sending two people yeah. on supermarket mountain bikes to race a World Cup. Yeah. Nothing in the rules to stop that. No, exactly. Because it's a federation-based UCI, 
and the federations can enter national team riders. Yeah. And no disregard to Zimbabwe, but they're not famous for mountain bike racing. And so it, it means that we have a really odd entry system into our World Cup. Now, I'm hoping that ESO Warner Brothers can have a bit more say in about who turns up. And we also have problems with the teams. We have so many UCI teams. Yeah. And, and, uh, and that's a good and a bad thing. I mean, it's good if you're showing the stats of growth, but really we all know that some of these teams are just set up basically to get free entry for their riders, guaranteed entry into the World Cups when we don't really know their level. So for me, I think they're going to get to a point where the number of teams will be reduced you know, yep. concentrated to a higher level, there may be a requirement that to get into the World Cup registration, you must have at least one rider ranked of this order or something like that. Because right now, I know there are a couple of teams that I know personally from, from this country I live in that uh, are basically organized just to get into the race, but they don't have the level. They come 168 at time. Yep. And it's like, what's the point? Guys, go to an IXS, go somewhere else and develop the skill, and then all eventually go to a World Cup qualifier. And if you are the highest ranked non-WC1, WC2 rider at that race, you will go to the next World Cup. That's, to me, the only way we can guarantee that we don't have what you just said, a huge disparity, which is a a security issue for the riders in speed on the track. You you know, you can't be a Formula One car coming around and finding a Trabant in the center of the track. You just can't. You have to be sure that everyone's of a similar order than you. So I often look at percentages back from the winner. You know, how, what's your percentage back? And that's off, you know, you can use sometimes that doesn't matter how long the track is, it's a percentage of time. And that can give you an idea where you stand. I think once you fall outside of 10%, then you're not really World Cup level. Well, so then there are ways to do this. I'm not in the rules making. Emmy's going to have a bit more chance than me getting some of this through, but there are safety issues with that for sure. Well, for sure. It, it kind of towards our next question. Um, but, you know, it's, it's what you just said about the, there's a lot of mountain bike teams now. And the reasons for that is because the UCI now just allow people to pay the money and register a team. And as long as you've got one rider ticking the box um, of finishing in an overall the year before, you can register anyone you want to that team. So you can have riders at a World Cup, theoretically, that have never even raced before. You could be turning up to Fort William next year and it could be your first ever race. Yeah team and it's it's wrong and it 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 kind of leads me towards as i say this next question um how how do you feel about privateers and um world cup racing and riders who aren't like you said already proving they're at a certain level do you feel like the sport's now in a position where that should be down at an ixs a a feeder level um rather than yeah you have privateers that are a lot stronger than team riders in many cases so-called UCI registered team riders are finishing way behind privateers who are, you know, struggling to get anywhere. And I think, you know, with it, with a team. So I, it's really hard what you define a privateer as, I guess. Um, sure. but I, you know, our, our sport has always been very open. So I'm, I'm not, um, completely against, you know, I, I don't want to see it become an elite club. You know, everyone says we want to be like Formula One. That's the, no, we don't. We don't want to be just 20 bike riders. We want to have a large number of talented, qualified athletes, whether they're on a team or not, and they have to be of a standard to race a World Cup. It is the pinnacle of our sport. So we can't just have sandbaggers in there who just want to have the thrill of going to a World Cup race. You know, th- there are people who really aspire to it, but there, are, there should be stepping stones to that. Yeah. For sure. You can't just sort of turn up 
uh, as I said, with some of these federation teams, we, we really need to get rid of the federation teams. They have their world championship. They can send their riders to world championships and they can be noticed there, or they can send their riders to the feeder system, to the World Cup qualifier. You know, if I was a promoter in the UK or in Germany and I was given World Cup qualifier status, I would be so stoked on that. That is a great marketing tool for me. And I know people will come from all over to try and qualify. So yeah. that should be something the organizers would want to get their event on the calendar and become a World Cup qualifier. And uh, that way, you know, you're ensuring that you have riders of the standard. And that really is a safety issue more than anything else. And also the degradation of the track and other things that go on when people who don't ride well create bracing bumps where they shouldn't be and things like that. I've had my riders come in saying, you know, the, the track is falling apart because there's people out there that don't know how to ride it. So, you know, that's, that's another issue. But it is a hard one because, you know, I see when and what he does with the privateer award and, and, and it's admirable that we have people that are, you know, doing it all on their own money and with their, traveling with their mom and doing all that sort of stuff. But I think the junior category is a good place for that to happen. And I think uh, there are other races for those that don't have the level yet. And I also think once it's adapted and changed to the point where it works, the, the rider, the privateer rider that, that Wynn has been promoting this year, Roger Vieira is, I guess, a fine example of that. Once the system is in place and working, at the start of every season, that wouldn't necessarily happen. Because the riders that performed well within the stepping stones would be then picked up by the teams, as long as the both teams for the system. Exactly. Yeah, and that you know, and it's now there are teams you know that that are looking for particular riders to give them a ranking that gives them the UCI lead status and all that sort of stuff. So the the genesis is there for you know providing the the incentive for teams to really think about their roster in order to earn a certain status. So. You could, you know, come up with a second tier underneath the lead. There could be another tier or so on. But that's all something that ESO or Warner Brothers Discovery and UCI have to figure out. But we should be culling the number of teams that are there just for the tourism visa. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not the right way for the elite, you know, representation of our sport on TV, I, th- I think. Yeah. So we touched on that subject before, Martin, when you mentioned the junior race. Uh, one of the big changes this year and in my opinion, on the good ones, was the introduction of uh, junior racing to the TV coverage. Um, do you feel like this will encourage more teams to give junior riders a spot um, on their team? Absolutely. It's a big selling point for Frameworks right now with us having Acer. We, you know, we really think he's going to feature in the TV. I think it's something I've been arguing for for years. Mm-hmm. As, as, you know, as we've had a category and they had the cameras set up for Red Bull and they were recording, why not at least do a highlight package or something that we're testing the cameras? And, and we argue also for the semifinals or the qualifying to be in the elite, to also be on TV. So yes, it, and, and not just because we wanted more TV, but when you look at cross country, they have their short track. So they had their appetizer, then that their main, and they got yep. lots of TV coverage and lots of ratings. We didn't have that. We were just the finals. So when in theory, we had something like the short track, we had our qualifying and we had our juniors. So I'm really. That was the first thing that I was really impressed with when Warner Brothers came out and said that they were going to give coverage to the juniors and also under 23 and cross country and other races have been going on we haven't seen. It does make a big difference. I think you only have to look at um, the racing we had this year and the juniors. It was so spectacular. It was really great to watch. Um, but I'd personally like to see it get to the main show, um, have Saturday be your YouTube day and Sunday be your 
your your uh, Eurosport day or your main coverage day, and all categories beyond that, like Moto three and Moto two and Moto GP are all on the same day in yeah, motorcycle racing. So, yeah, there's still more to be done, but I think the product was great. I think that it made it gave a great stage for the riders and. It was a big part of, you know, frameworks wanting to hire Acers that we saw two years great coverage for the brand in juniors. So yeah. And and we're not just giving him a hotel and and food. He's he's a proper professional athlete and hired for that reason. Yeah, that's cool. Um, how did you feel about the cancellation of the junior race in, in Lunonville? <laughs> it was at, at first I was really pissed off about it. Like if I was there, I probably would have been really upset. But Then when I heard more about it, it was more the fact that the security people and the medical staff couldn't perform their job. Yeah. Then it came back to them, what the hell are we doing there? Yeah. If you are you're organizing a World Cup, and I've organized a couple in the 90s, you have to think of everything. What if it's going to be pissing down with rain for a week? Can we hold a race on this course? French have typically, with Leger, remember Superman, um, I, I think... Reese Wilson, I mean, um, that, that accident in Leger or that whole race, Leger was at debacle because of the yeah. weather. It wasn't built to sustain a wet weekend. And hey, we're in the Alps. It rains in the afternoons in summer. So you need to build a track that not just from a racing point of view, but from a security point of view can operate. And so when I heard that the security staff couldn't do their job and they wouldn't be able to evacuate people and after living through what Brooke went through, there yeah. is no way that we could race. So it wasn't that, look, yeah, send the juniors down. They'll all get down probably most of them. But if one of them had a serious like Brooke kind of accident, you can't, you can't take that risk. But it should never have been homologated. That track shouldn't have been approved unless it could operate in all weather conditions. You know, we, yeah. we are an all sport. So I think that was the big failing. I think a brand new venue had created a track that was only good if the sun shone. And that's, that's pretty optimistic in our sport. Yeah. You know, you look at it, Monsonan's a bit different. The mountain's a bit different. It really can handle the rain. So can Fort William. Um, but I also think back to Champry. That was pretty crazy when it rained, but we did run, run the race. And I think now there's more and more attention being paid to the health and safety of the riders, which is really, really important. So it was a decision made on that basis, and I agree with it. But I don't think we should have been in that position to, have to make that decision. There should have been some sort of measures taken that if it rained, here's how evacuations would take place. I mean, so yeah, but I have, that's not just the only, like I have problems with Fort William. It can be a beautiful sunny day, but if there's a bit of wind, we can't race because the gondola yeah. is operating by the way to get to the top of the track. So how do you explain that to a live TV audience? So the racing isn't going on because it's sunny, but a bit windy. That uh, doesn't make sense to So we really have to look at tracks that have a plan B for all weather options. Otherwise, you can't run. Yeah, for sure. I learned that the, high, the hard way this year with Cam being having the biggest crush of her life because of the wind gusts on a roll gap she's done like 50 times without an issue. Yeah. So um, building features in the very exposed wind situation on the hill that's a bit windy every day from noon to three, four o'clock, is, it is risky. So I guess we have some work to do about protocols and some kind of security measure that you have to take when the weather is not playing ball. So, yeah. yeah. We're, we're an outdoor sport, so we need to accept that there are limitations with that. And, and there will be times where the top riders get a bad run in the rain and others don't. But I think we've, 
ameliorated that to some degree by having yeah. the races finish earlier um, to avoid a lot of the summer thunderstorms in the Alps. But it is, you know, I heard Loic talk about that, how, you know, there's some, there needs to be something done, but I'm nervous about putting the commissaires, you know, turning them into weathermen and predicting the weather for the next mm-hmm. day, and then it doesn't turn out. It's hard to predict the weather in the mountains. You have to, Sorry. unfortunately, we have enough races and the point structure is such that you can have a one weird race affected by weather and Loic still wins the overall. Yeah. I see uh, when you look at what happened with the juniors, it, it wasn't really about the course conditions. It was about the the outside of course, you know, and, and that story didn't get out quick enough. I think there should have been sure. more said about that, that we can't operate our medical evacuation and security in these conditions. And then I think everyone would have just accepted it. Yeah, you won't sure. get anyone say, oh, come on, if I break my neck, it's my problem. No, everyone is like, okay. Yeah, we need that in place. And it's the same. If, if, if a helicopter can't be at some motorsport races because of fog, then they don't hold the race. We yeah. can't evacuate. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it now, but at first I was really pissed off. I thought it was a wussy decision, but now I get it. Nice. Well, all to the future then. Um, next season's calendar is out now, and there is um, only seven races. Um, there's no US run for DH. The response is a bit um, tepid, to say the least, Um on social media, what are your thoughts about the calendar? Yeah, I'm the same. I, I didn't get too excited about it. Um, I really, I love Fort William because of the crowd, mm-hmm. but I think everything else about it is a bit tired. Um, and so I wasn't really, especially with Mike and Leslie retiring at the Worlds, I, I wasn't sure it was going to be back. But then Chris hinted to me that it's, you know, it's not far. I mean, they, they're based in Scotland and, uh, and I guess it's, you know, quite a successful event model so yeah i wasn't excited about fort william um i don't know anything about poland venue um i'm disappointed that we're not going to the usa when i really thought we were there was some sort of implications early on that we would be i don't know if snowshoe was surprised uh, by the decision um but you know i i'm disappointed to see that cross country have nine venues and an olympic games and a world championships and i represent the cross-country teams, and I'm happy for them. I'm disappointed for downhill that it doesn't have the same level of high-level competition. And I don't know the reason for that. Another question from Chris next Tuesday. They may, I do know they had way more uh, venues bid for cross-country, uh, almost double what they actually allocated, than they did for downhill. So a lot of it can be to do with who's out there ready to run a race. You can't just make someone run a race. I always hear people, why are we in Japan? Why do we go to Schlotman? Why do we do you got to have someone doing it. And mm-hmm. if the people aren't putting their hands up to take the risk to run the event, then not much you can do. Um, so, yeah, I would have loved to have seen nine races, no question. We have told them we don't want to go more than 10. That's been told quite a few times to uh, Warner Brothers that no more than 10 rounds and no more than one um, exotic a year, as we call them, outside of North America and, and Europe. Um, cross-country, you're over two in Brazil, but they're next door to each other. So it feels like one race, they're back-to-back, but... Yeah, that's, I would like to see nine, at least eight. Okay. Um, do you see there being like an increase in prize money or um, them being paid an appearance fee at, at all, like for making our TV coverage, as the riders suggested? Because it's been professionalized where the riders are newer sports now, but like the money side of things has not moved. Do you think that's going to change in the future? Um, well, from the cross-country side, we put in a, a revised prize money uh, proposal to the UCI. Um, it got it got 
sent to the management committee. We haven't heard what they've said, um, but it was a big increase. There are two. There are two sides to this. There's um, ESO or Warner Brothers who pay the overall, and then the individual rounds are paid by the local organizer as part of their contract. So, if there are contracts already in place, um, it's kind of hard to uh, change that mm. right now. But they have told me all along that their their goal is to to increase the prize money. Um, so I, I think it would come. I, I used to have a bit of a battle with the UCI president when I worked at the UCI on this. We did have pretty good prize money. It was a million Swiss francs, but it was over all the disciplines and so forth. But you were getting something like, uh, I think it was like 8,000 or 5,000 for a win. Um, and for the overall, you would get 10 grand and a Jeep or something. Um, and we were also paying down to 20th place, which we yeah. don't do yeah. now. I think we only paid a 10th. So we put in a, a revised proposal for cross country, um, but it sort of changed the, you know, right now the, for an event, I think for cross country now, uh, the over for a prize money organizer has to pay something like 16,000. What we proposed was something like 54,000. So big jump, but yeah. it was based on the 1990s model. Okay. So, you know, we, you know, 54,000, then you think we handed out a million, then that's sort of about right, about 20 events around that sort of amount. So, yeah, I, but my, my UCI president back then used to say, look, we're not a, we're, we're a salary-based sport. We're not a prize money-based sport. We are not golf. We are not tennis. We, we offer a sport where athletes own a salary and the prize money is secondary. So that was always the UCI viewpoint of their sports, so, road cycling the same. So they never saw that prize money shouldn't be um, the main focus for the athletes. It should be about providing the athletes with a healthy environment to get a strong contract. That's, that's their view. Um, it may have changed, obviously, since I left, but that was a very strong viewpoint that we're not a salary, we're a salary-based sport, not a prize money-based one. But I think when you see the US Open handing out the prize money it does, it's always referenced back to how little the UCI pays. So that that's, that's not something to be proud of. Yeah. So um, the industry is going for a bit at the moment, but um, the number of riders who are racing is probably at all-time high. Um, how do you feel mountain biking is doing right now? Um, like you say, participation, fan engagement um, at all-time highs, um, quality of riding, uh, excitement levels, all that stuff, all-time high. Um, I think the industry situation is non-representative of the sport it's completely separate but we can't be a sport that totally relies on the industry that we're in yeah. and we have to be looking outside the industry in order to to grow the sport so um i've been lucky to work with two non-industry players in my first two teams and there is a couple of teams now that i think are close to forming with non-industry money in cross country we had ford motor company come in and sponsor the Rock Rider team, they doubled their budget. So they, there are opportunities now with Warner Brothers Discovery because most people in the corporate world and the agencies who are out there looking for properties for their clients understand that. They know who Warner Brothers Discovery is, more so than Red Bull TV. And so there is an opportunity if you work with an agency to say, look, I have this property or this team or this event. Um, I think there's more opportunity now. We have one year under our belt to do something with it. But it's gradual. It's not going to happen overnight, but we'll see more and more non-industry money coming in. And that's what will help us. It's, you know, when we were sponsored by rockyroads.com or whatever it was, 
You know, that was like table tennis being sponsored by pingpong.com. It was just stupid and we should never allow that. So we need to be strong, non-industry. You know, Mercedes was great for the, for the, for the, for the sport. Um, that will come, but we can't be relying on the industry. If we think we can run professional teams just from industry money, then, you know, this is a wake up club for everyone right now. And at Frameworks, we're talking to a sponsor outside of industry for title sponsorship 2025. And that's all built on what's happening at the World Cup level with TV coverage. Excellent. That's a, a great place to end it, Martin. J- just one final question from me. Yep. Are there any riders who you haven't worked with who you wish you had? Oh, it's, it's always been Loic. He knows that. I've told him that many times. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there are a couple of riders that you, you'd like to work with where you're a bit afraid that they're a bit like a bucking bull, you know, like I... Thibaut de Prella and Run and Dunn really fascinate me as riders. I don't know how well they would work within my, you know, my, my way of running teams, but I really admire and respect what they do on a bike. Um, so I'm not closing the door on those two, um, but Loic's the one that, you know, I've told him backstage at Fort William a couple of times, like, oh, you know, you're the one I've always wanted to work with because he's just so professional. He's fun. He's, he, he gets it. He's the essence of our sport right now. Um, and I think, you know, when we had the YT mob, I really wanted to have Valley on the team. Um, that wasn't allowed by the title sponsor. And then I really wanted to get Nina Hoffman on when she was starting to break out. Again, wasn't allowed to, to hire her. But so there've been some that I've wanted to and haven't been in the position to. Um, you often have to listen to your title sponsor and what they want. But um, yeah, Loic's the one that I think, I think most team managers would like to work with Loic just because of his professionalism and his success rate. He's, he's a great writer. Excellent. Well, look, thank you for, for making the time to come on the pod. It's been incredibly insightful. I have a huge affinity for what you do, Martin, and we have a lot in common with, from previous life as DJs to being just being massive fans of the <laughs> sport uh, with a, a kind of a role on the sidelines. And hopefully uh, you'll come on again soon. It's been a pleasure, guys. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Martin. Good Martin. Thank you. Cheers. We'll be back with Charlie Hatton after these messages. Hi there, it's Jordan Williams from Specialised Gravity. We've just had a mega week and ride some in Spain, and our top group was here. We had Charlie Hatton and Joe Breeden, so we had we had some tough competition, but yeah, awesome tracks, awesome uplift. There was some amazing views, and for sure the bike took a beating. So if you come along, make sure you bring your spares, but. Yeah, awesome week, awesome group of people. Andy's an amazing guy and all the other people that are there helping out. Just, I couldn't ask much more really. Uh, Good laugh and there's a pool there to jump in after a good day's riding. It's pretty cold, so good recovery. And yeah, there's some nice places to eat. So get yourself along because it's a good laugh and good fun. Cheers. If you're enjoying the Making Up the Numbers podcast, hit subscribe now so you don't miss an episode and drop us a review whenever it's convenient. For additional content, follow us on Instagram at Making Up the Numbers Racing. Choose single track. Choose print. Choose digital. Choose an independent mountain bike magazine. Choose mountain bike culture. Choose adventure and mishap. Choose great stories and glorious photography. 
Choose ad-free access to our website. Choose time out with a mug of tea. Choose an annual subscription. Choose a monthly subscription. Choose discounts in our shop on a range of ethical products. Choose bobble hats. Choose hip flasks. Choose gift subscriptions for your friends. Choose single track salvation for your arse. Choose a username. Choose a community. Choose to support independent publishing. Choose your future and our future. Choose single track. I'm now delighted to welcome back to the show the 2023 Downhill World Champion, Charlie Hatton. How you doing? Hello, hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm all right, mate. Are you tired of hearing that introduction yet? No, it still sounds strange though every time people say it. It's not a bad one though. <laughs> no, <laughs> something you can get used to. Um, yeah, definitely. So you're always on the podcast when I take a mic to the races, but last appearance on the, on the big show was in 2020 and it's been an interesting few years since then. Gradual improvements year on year and then boom, you pulled the big one out this season. Starting, just going back to, to when you were last on, 2020 was a shortened season. You got 12th at the second Maribor race, solid 20 top 20 results in time training. 2021, I think you crashed three race runs in a row and then you improved with every race, ending with a 15th in snowshoe and 22nd in the overall. From there, things really seemed to start to click. 2022, 15th in Fort William after qualifying P2 and then a first World Cup top 10 with an 8th in Gang. You won Crankwork Innsbruck, backed you up with a 7th in Lenzerheide. Did you feel at that point that it was all starting to come together, like you were becoming a, a top 10 guy? Um, yeah, I guess, as you said, it has been quite a gradual progression and almost like a step up every year, really. Um, so, yeah, I think it's been nice to have that like jump every year to sort of know that I am improving. And I guess you learn things every year. So it's just like, yeah, getting more experience, really. And then I think that pays dividends in the end. Going back into that timeline, you crashed in snowshoe off that second drop, 13th in Montserrat, and then went on to Val de Sol, the season ender, 6th in time training, 8th in the quali, 7th in finals on what we all talked about was one of the roughest Val de Sols we'd ever had. Um, that consistency must have been pleasing. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think it was great that last race in Val de Sol, obviously having the 6th time training, 8th quali, and then 7th um, in the final. Yeah, I think... On a track like that, it was like the proof that my riding was good enough. I just need to sort of um, get all the other pieces together. And then I knew I could uh, could do it basically. But yeah, it's, it's super tough. And there's so many fast guys at the moment that, well, we've seen this year, there's how many different winners? Almost every race. So <laughs> yeah, I think it's just trying to, um, yeah, find out what best works for you. Finding which puzzles fit where, and then you can sort of work from there. But it's definitely not easy and it definitely takes time. Absolutely. So you finished 22, 12th in the overall um, yeah. season today. How did you approach the off season last year? Um, I don't really think I approached it any different. Um, I think I maybe focused a bit more on my riding um, in the actual off season. So I focused a lot on riding there. I did loads and loads of riding in the winter. And then as you coming up into the season, I probably focused a bit more on the gym stuff and then just like really sharp, really like precise riding when I was riding. It wasn't just riding for the sake of it. Um, and then, yeah, I think that was, um, yeah, probably my approach really. When you say precise riding there, do you mean like, was it a lot of timed runs? Yeah, not necessarily time runs. Well, I guess it would be time runs, but very like, um, I do six runs a day. The last three are timed. That's it. Put the bike in the van. Yeah. 
I was I was just about to ask a similar question to George because from a coaching perspective, I've, I use you as an example so much. And back in 2017, when we spent a bit of time together, when you were in your first year elite, um, the sport's been changing a lot over the last years. And I basically tried to remodel the way I rode around that time. My riding was quite yeah. inefficient, quite off the back. Um, and you're one of the guys who I did study in took things from the way you ride. And over the last however many years, I I referenced you a lot in my coaching sessions. Finally, you delivered an amazing result this year. Thanks. Yeah. I say to all the guys, <laughs> Thank you very I, much. <laughs> I keep telling you. So um, the question I've got off the back of that is, when you were, got, you just said you focused more on your riding maybe in the off season. The way you ride, I, I as a coach wouldn't change anything. We are you going out trying to work on specific things, or is it more that you're just going out, getting the bike time, getting into a track, and then doing those time runs and not overthinking? Yeah, I think I've been quite lucky in that sense that my riding style—that is just my riding style—I've never really tried to change or adapt it. Yeah. So yeah, I'm pretty lucky in that sense. I think um, obviously there's certain things I think I could do better, but I think when I would go out, I wouldn't be focusing on any like body positioning things like that. It would just be all about actually riding and trying to almost get faster maybe some technique stuff like breaking points and trying yeah. to really push the limit but yeah never really focused on body yeah. position things well you don't yeah. not much yeah. you don't really need to so that made sense i was supposed to go on a trip with you jack i can't remember what year it was but i had to pull out at the last minute and binzi took my place and it was to portugal cool. yeah we're going back now probably 20 it was 2016 yeah 2016 and charlie was on that trip if I yeah possibly yeah yeah and I, binzy came back and said there's this young yeah you kid. were charlie we crashed into each other in the go-karts and then they killed you <laughs> i don't remember the go-karts i think i remember the trip was the, the outdoor like in the Portugal Algarve, car right? and it rained on the last lap and we had that head on i'm sure that was you yeah it could have been you would have been you would have only been about 15 you've forgotten about that. i probably can't remember it. i had concussion or something you you were really young and binzy came back and said you know you were the best technically rider he'd ever seen and brian from ride portugal said he charlie hatton's the best rider i've ever seen no way yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And <laughs> i'll Bin- take I re- that i remember binzy coming back and telling me that yeah i'm i'm signing one for next year that very much reminds me of how you used to ride when you were younger and i'm i'm very hopeful that that kind of natural ability and body position and the way the bike is ridden it's you know kind of repeats itself so yeah. Anyway, thanks, thanks for us. Uh, we've, we've spiraled off there. Tangent. That's probably going to happen a lot tonight. Talking to you, um, but anyway, um, you then went on to re-sign with the Athens at the end of end of last season. Um, was there any doubt for you that you might leave, or were you always like, "I'm I'm staying here"? No, I was. Yeah, pretty certain I was going to stay there. I think I've been with those guys now for well, since 2018. So yeah, yeah, we built a great relationship and. The kit we use now is super good. So yeah, I was stoked to stay. Yeah, it leads me nicely on to my next question. I mean, the, obviously we can see the bike is working extremely well. Um, are you still working on big changes with the frame and the geometry and bits about sizing? Or is it more now are you just tweaking dials on suspension and small changes? Um, into the last, going into the off season, me and Andy had a few little things that we would like to have changed. Um that's what we sort of implemented into this previous off season. So we did some stuff about like frame flex and things like that. Um, but no massive changes, to be honest, like nothing to the geometry. It was just all about the carbon layup on the frames, to be honest. Um, 
And yeah, we seem to have got that in a really good place now. I think we had three or four different um, seat stays and train stays to, to test. So I think we found a pretty good balance. Um, I think me, Andy, Lloydie and Ben, the head mechanic, we've got a call tomorrow. I'm going to do a pretty similar thing and just say what we think is good and bad about the bike and have a bit of a debrief and yeah, try and look to get even better, I guess, into next year. Yeah, nice. Um, how much difference can you feel with that kind of thing? I've never really worked with carbon, so is it a big difference? Yeah, I think it's definitely a difference. You feel it flexing more in corners, and obviously if you have a bit more flex on like off-cambers and stuff, you seem to have a lot more grip than in like a tighter turn. When you really push into it, you can feel the whole back end sort of moving, so you can definitely feel it. Yeah, onto this season. But you could feel it, George. It doesn't mean that we'd feel it as much as he would like no. <laughs> you're going to be riding how charlie and andy rides like and that amount to be yeah. like well okay I, I number two was better than number five like, most corners i go into are just like oh i got that wrong oh i got that wrong <laughs> we're gonna fix that think, though two weeks time we are yeah i think it's re- repeatability like if you ride the same track over and over and over yeah say three days in a row, you sort of get like a good idea of what your bike does in every corner. So yeah. when you make these small changes, you do you do notice them. Onto this season, the, the national at Fort William, you seeded second behind Jordan. How much confidence did that give you? Because it was a pretty stacked field. Yeah, that was <laughs> it was a stacked race that one. I remember looking at the lineup and I was like, oh my days, this is um yeah, like a World Cup really. So yeah, it was really good, I think, having that race and um, yeah, definitely gave me some confidence going on to the rest of the year. Yeah. And was it was it there or was it at the World Cup? I remember interviewing you and I remember Andy said he couldn't live with you through the middle section. Was it at the National? Um, maybe, I'm not sure. I remember he did say that at the World Cup, at the World Champs, sorry. Did it? Yeah. Because there was one bit where you posted on Instagram, I think, there was a clip of you coming through that middle section when you come off the rocks and it was like, it's the fastest I think I've ever seen anybody go, go through <laughs> that section. It, it was terrifying. But yeah, super impressive. And if, it, how, how, if, if Andy's telling you that, how much confidence does that give you? Yeah, a lot because he's one of the fastest guys in the world, I guess. So yeah, I think it's really cool. Me and Andy, we always ride together at World Cups as well. It's like quite a cool dynamic we've got. We are like try different lines behind each other. And yeah, I guess we're all ultimately looking for the fastest way down the hill, which is cool. I track walked with him just by chance. There's a few of us at Montserrat after quali. And I asked him if he was missing you. And and he genuinely was like, fuck. He was like, yeah, loads. He was like, I'm, yeah, I can ride with, he was riding with Ronan and Oshin a lot. But yeah, he did say he, did say he was uh, he was missing his buddy. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's quite weird for him. We pretty much rode together. Yeah every race so yeah it must have been a bit strange for him yeah so um hi charlie hello so touching on the subject of your teammates and the support you got around you um when the season started you got solid result in Lanzahar. you got eighth in quality 17th semi then top 10 in finals but rachel won the race and then Leo gagno 65th in quali 17th in semi and 16th in final and then andy won the race and like does that put additional pressure on you when, when your teammates are winning? Or is it just like pushing you and raising your spirits and you guys can celebrate and, and like pushing you to, to actually you as well um, get better? Yeah, definitely. I don't think it would add any pressure. Well, I don't feel any pressure when those guys win because I'm like, well, I guess we know that the kit's like 
good enough to win. And yeah, yeah it's almost like um, more confidence inspiring, I'd say. And yeah, to see those guys win also, it's really sick because like, even outside of the races, we're all good friends. So yeah, it's awesome to see. Yeah, well, we'll talk probably about Worlds later, but <laughs> Rachel was probably happier when you won Worlds than she when she won her her own race. It's <laughs> pretty funny to see. Yeah, she probably I guess cried she's while seeing you in. <laughs> yeah, I think she's won a lot. Yeah, well, true, it's true. Um, let's move on to Val di Sole. You got fifth in quali. Yeah, and then a DNF in semi with a huge crash, which looked almost like you a, pot- a potential leg break. It was horrendous. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that might be the world champs dream over at that point. Um, I don't think it was over. I definitely had to try and play it very smart leading up to that race. Obviously, we had hard line, which I was gutted not to do. Well, I don't know if um, gutted is the right word, maybe relieved. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was pretty savage crash, just not my ankle. Uh, it was pretty beaten up, but luckily it wasn't too bad. So I almost... Took some rest after that and then leading into World Champs, it was a lot of rehab stuff and in the gym most days actually. So coming into Fort William, I was actually probably stronger than ever. Hmm. Um, so when, as a British rider, obviously Fort William World Champs will be a huge like goal for you. Um, and there's a bit, there was a month between Val Sole and Worlds, like luckily for you, but did you have like a, a strategy at all for Worlds because it's such a big race for Brits? Um, like maybe, I don't know, like maybe in the back of your mind, the Val de Sol, like, oh, maybe worlds are coming or can you not ride like that? Yeah, I don't know. I never really thought about worlds as like this thing I need to be ready for and blah, blah, blah. I guess that's what okay. we train for off season and that's why we ride and test the bike so much in the off season. So yeah, I think every race coming up, I'm sort of ready for, um, but definitely after Val de Sol, it was quite a strange feeling really because I qualified fifth. And it was all really tight. So I was like, yeah. I know I'm riding really well. And then when I crashed out in the semi, I didn't really feel like I did much wrong, but it was just like one of those crashes. I just rolled over on a rock, I guess, from watching the footage back. Um, but yeah, it was like after that race, I was saying to Lloydie, the team manager, like it's coming, but I just, I'm not sure when. Mm-hmm. Like, after that fifth in Corley, I was like, okay, right. Maybe a podium's on this weekend. And then obviously I crashed. I was like, oh, when's it going to come? This is like getting a bit frustrating now, but I yeah. know you just got to stick with it. And then obviously Worlds was the next one. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. that paid out quite well. Yeah. Just to pause you there, like George is going to dive in, but you are one of the most down to earth people I know. Like, and I've known you for a while now. You've just said there that you left Val Soul with that feeling. Did you go to Fort William wound up? Were you like, I'm fucking having this? Or was it just the same Charlie Atten that went up there just to see how it was going to go? Yeah, I'm probably not very good at um, getting like very wound up. I don't think that's how I work really. Um, yeah. I should, I should yeah. try and get a bit more like that. I might do better. You should talk to Bernard about that. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. He'll help yeah, you I with think, that. I think we're complete <laughs> opposites. <laughs> I was more just wondering this because, like you say, Valdesol didn't go well, and, but could have done. And I was wondering if it has changed your kind of mindset and approach then leading into worlds or whether you just kind of carried on down the same same normal approach so it's interesting yeah yeah same normal approach i think but yeah as i said it's a good point so on to fort william and you were the first person i interviewed for the show i did from there and i seem to recall you being the only rider who was uh, hoping for rain which obviously came true but 
I was only there on, on Wednesday and Thursday. And on Thursday, I'm stood at the finish and this lady taps me on the shoulder and says, I, I just want to say how much I love your podcast. And so we get chatting and she says, uh, I'm Charlie's mum, by the way. And we, we spoke for a bit. <laughs> and uh, I remember saying, I think he's as good as anyone on the hill, but I don't think he thinks he is. And she agreed completely with me. We could all see it. I remember Aaron Gwynn coming on the pod and saying, Charlie's a podium guy. Did you believe you could win it? Um, maybe not win. I thought a medal was possible. But yeah, it's a funny one. Like, I don't really ever like to put any numbers or goals on it. I try and just go off the, I'm going to try my best, obviously. So like, wherever that ends me up, that's where it ends me up. It's sort of like, for me, relieves the pressure of yeah. saying like, I need to win. Like, I don't need to win. I need to do my best. And then hopefully that is good enough. But it's um, very tough. Like, it's probably a confidence thing. Maybe I should believe in myself a lot more. But I think for me, confidence works in a different way. Of, like, I guess by doing well, that gives me more, more confidence. Um, so, yeah, everyone works differently, I guess. Did, did you feel like you were one of the potential race winners? Like, did you feel like you were in that group or did you feel like you were in the bit below? Um, to be fair, Fort Williams probably the best I've ever felt ever yeah. riding my bike. From the second run, I was like, I have never rode my bike faster than that. <laughs> and then that was my second run. So I was like, right, okay, I'm riding good here. And it just, I don't know, sometimes it just clicks and you can ride fast without really trying, Yeah, which is quite a weird feeling. Um, doesn't come around often. Yeah. I think what you just said there is such a healthy way of looking at it is how I've always tried to look at my my racing rather than I want to be this number or I want to beat this person or just am I doing my best and then where does that put you? It's such a healthy way to to race and, and compete. It's, it's nice to hear someone at your level saying that. Um, so in Fort William, you seeded sixth. You were second fastest in that tough sector too. How did you feel after the seeding? Yeah, I felt really good after the seeding. Um Certain areas I knew I didn't push as hard as I could have. Um, like the top split, my top split was, I don't know if you've got the numbers there, but it was tragic. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got the numbers here, but I remember seeing it being a fair bit down, yeah. Yeah, I think I was maybe in the 40s on the first split and I was like, right, okay, I've lost a lot of time. I think it was like one and a half seconds maybe. So I was like, I need to really hammer that top section. And then also the bottom section, I lost a bit of time because I was just speed second to the line to try and save energy. I think saying about saving energy as well, um, I did four practice runs, well, three fast ones, and then one like sighter at the end of the practice. So I've tried to really manage my energy and then have as, well, almost be as fresh as I could be for that Sunday race. So yeah, I think that helped. Nice. So how many runs did you do in total of the weekend then? I guess four on the first day, probably three on the quality day and then probably three on the race day. So not, not too many. Nice. No, not many at all. So onto the race, Greg Williamson comes down in a dry, puts a good run in, sat in the hot seat. Heaven's open. Angel puts a good one down. Did you know anything at the top? Um, did the weather change change your mindset at all? No, not at all, really. Um, yeah, as I've said before, I was super excited when I seen the rain, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, yeah, obviously know the track really well. That definitely helped me a lot especially like with doing those limited practice runs because I knew sort of obviously they changed the track slightly but that was quite easy to adjust to yeah and then yeah when I see the rain come down I was pretty happy I know it runs so good there in the wet 
the grip at the top's better. The rocks don't really get slippery. So I was cool. like, right, we can absolutely hammer this. And then I had a bit of a strategy really because my split was so bad in the qualifying. I was like, I'm just going to absolutely pedal as hard as I can at the top, try and get a good split there. It still wasn't great to be fair. And then yeah, hammered all the way to the woods. I thought, right, let's go a little bit steady through here because it's very easy to crash. And then again, just get on the pedals as hard as you could at the bottom. Yeah. Okay. Did you take any extra chances or would, would you say the run was re- repeatable or? Yeah, it was a really weird one, if I'm honest. Um, if you'd have told me that was the world champs winning run, would I have said yes? I'm not sure. Cause it was just, everything just felt so natural. I wasn't doing anything I would normally do. I think it just all linked up so well. Yep. I think my prep for the weather helped massively as well. I've seen a lot of people faffing at the top trying to tape on like old lenses on the top of their peaks and things like that. And I think riding in the winter all year, we have such a good wet weather setup. It just yeah. helped massively with that side of it. What What did you do? What What is your wet weather setup? So obviously vision is the biggest probably thing in the wet. So we had an extra long mug guard on. Um, we had obviously rip and rolls and then Bell make this peak like visor extension. It's like a clear, goes over your whole peak and then comes out about three, four inches over the end of your peak. And it literally just bolts in the same as your helm, the peak bolts do. I've never seen that. Yeah. So that really, really helps. And then other things we did to the bike, we put some, there's literally duct tape over the brake calipers. So that basically stops any water going in, almost yeah. keeps the heat in there. Fort William's quite a tough one for brakes. I always struggle to get them hot enough that they actually work. Yeah. Okay. Especially when there's a lot of water on the track because you barely use them. Yeah. That's it. You're doing such long sections without actually braking. So you need oh, to yeah. try and somehow keep the heat in. George, George, <laughs> I've um, kind of talking to Benoit about the first sector. Yeah. And so these guys are not breaking before the big, long left-hander. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thanks, me. Yeah, not at all. There's three breaking points at the top in the right weather. Yeah, yeah. not me and George, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I've braked three times before that hip, just, you know, the one where people watch from the viewing point. Yeah. <laughs> Break off it, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I do actually, yeah. <laughs> so you go into the hot seat, three questions. Well, one's kind of a double question. Who, who is the danger man? Who are you most concerned about is the first question. And then the second one is when did you start to think, fuck, I think I've got this. Well, danger man, anyone after me, to be honest. Okay. As we said before, like everyone now is so good on the top of their game. So yeah, there was names coming down. I was like, right, this could be where I uh, sit next door. (laughs) (laughs) And then it would come up red and I was like, oh my God, I've laid down an absolute heater here. (laughs) (laughs) And then I guess when I realized I won, well, to be honest, even when I did win, I didn't even think I realized it, to be honest. Yeah. (laughs) It was such a strange feeling. Like, I guess... From my previous best result, it was such a big jump. There was, as we've talked about before, this natural progression of like top 20, top 15, top 10. Yeah. I didn't, I thought the next step would be like a top five. And I went straight to, to world champ. So it's a <laughs> bit of a jump. And was that, was the world champs run as fast as that second run? You know, you said the one that you did and you were like, that's the fastest I've gone. Was it as fast as that? Well, yeah, I'd say it was probably faster, but yeah. I don't know. I guess 
as you just do more and more runs on that track, probably just building the speed up and up and up. Um, but yeah, it was pretty, yeah, it just felt like a pretty perfect run. There was nothing that went wrong. And when I watched it back, you see people making mistakes. I think that's yeah probably where it paid dividends. Like I didn't really make any mistakes, I think. Yeah, for sure. Castro talked about, um, he felt you won it coming up, you know, out of the left-hander at the bottom where, where Matt Walker crashed. You did the inside line there. Laurie lost speed there. Quite a few people had problems there. Were you always going to hit that inside line through that turn or was that a wet weather adjustment? Um, no, nah, to be fair, we'd been, we'd actually been playing with in and outside all weekend, but I think it was actually Andy's coach was stood there for ages and he got loads of footage and, yep. uh, yeah, he came to the conclusion that the inside was faster. And then the only problem is when it was wet, it was greasy. Yeah. So I sort of took it a bit steady in, but then as soon as I had my bike pointed in that direction, I just used a little cattle grid to turn off and then just, yeah, hard on the gas. And like well, you say, there's a few, few guys that went outside and stalled up in the corner, which, yeah, could have been a different result if that didn't happen. But yeah, it was definitely a, an easy section to ride through, but super, super important. I think that's the thing with Fort William, like those easier sections, the things you don't really think about, you think, right, I can have a rest here. It's absolutely opposite. Yeah. That's the time. That's the place where you can make time. And I think we learned that the year before, like people were coming through the woods up and then it was actually that flat section where loads of people lost loads of time. So yeah, I really tried to give it absolutely everything through there, like hard as I could on the pedals and yeah, paid off. Were you always going inside there? Like, was there any uh, uh, three quarters of the way down the run? We, or is he coming into that section? Did you actually think to yourself, should I go outside or was it? uh No, I think, yeah, on your finals run, you know exactly where you're going. There's no line choice that you're thinking about. Every single line I'd say was pretty much to how I would have wanted it or how I would have visualized it and planned it in my head. Yeah. Did you change any because of the weather? No, just the setup, as I mentioned before about the mud guard and vision things really uh, what were the super- celebrations like mate was it i don't know i didn't feel like <laughs> <laughs> i think yeah the celebrations weren't actually that mental one because fort williams probably not the best uh nightlife so <laughs> <laughs> but no we went out went out with all well my family was there my girlfriend was there yeah we went out with the team and yeah had a few drinks and stuff but yeah it was nothing nothing crazy to be honest yeah okay nice bonus yeah, not bad. <laughs> <laughs> better than, yeah, better it's than not UCI bad. prize money, I imagine. That's what you want. Yeah, I think so. Well, I don't know. Oh. I actually haven't had that UCI prize money, so we'll see when I get it. <laughs> there you go. No, I'm set yeah. tell, tell me a bit about that feeling like the next morning when you woke up. What was was the jersey hanging there on the, you know, on the wardrobe or was it when you opened your eyes, it was it like, fuck, did I dream that or did it really happen or... Yeah, I didn't sleep much that night, actually. <laughs> Just trying to process it all. And to be fair, I would like, I wouldn't really think about it. And then I'd see a little thing pop up or look on my phone and I'd be like, oh my God, what is going on? <laughs> no. And then I had things like going on the TV and things like this. Yeah, it was uh, pretty crazy. <laughs> uh, was was BBC Bre- Was it BBC Breakfast you were on? Yeah, BBC Breakfast, that was it, on the red sofa. <laughs> And so, like, was that the next day as well? Or was no, it- so I went to the velodrome the next day. Yeah. And I had an so- interview with BBC there. That was just a, like a two, three minute one. And then, yeah, I think it was the following week. I went on there with um, some other 
riders that won world champs from the UK. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we all had a little sit down and a little chat about it. And yeah, it was pretty cool actually. But you can't really party, can you? You can't be partying and then turn up to go and do that kind of stuff. So how how much of it is kind Not of... Not really. <laughs> is, you've won that. How much of it is then kind of managed through the next bit? Um, yeah, it was definitely mental. It was the requests I had for interviews and media stuff was <laughs> something I've never had before, which is, I guess, is understandable. But yeah, to be fair, Jill, who does all like the team stuff, she's been absolutely brilliant like sorting out interviews and yeah, she's made my life a hell of a lot easier. Yeah. You're on a, you're on a team that's used to it. And I imagine oh, yeah, that really helps, you know? Yeah. With G, Rach and Dan, uh, the media side of it, they're super good at. So yeah, I guess Jill's very well practiced. Cool. Nice. So um, obviously all that media attention and also you achieving such a, such a big thing as getting the jersey. Like did that world champs victory give you like a big confident boost like in your riding at all um, i think it did yeah i think it sort of just proved to myself that yes i can do it but yeah it was quite a weird feeling um, so you didn't feel like you need to uh, do anything special like you said so it's just like riding like you were if you do everything perfect you can win races basically yeah that's it really i think from that world's run i guess there was a lot of factors that went into it but I didn't feel like I've changed my riding at all. So mm. I knew that my riding was, was there. It was just the other things probably that needed to click into place. So, um, yeah, I don't think I changed anything after, but it was definitely, definitely a strange feeling. Yeah, man. You have Jersey forever. So that's like, yeah, feeling, I guess. Um, yeah, it was so strange. Sis, pretty, I remember I interviewed you after the race. Cause I was, um, I was doing the Swiss commentary for worlds, but then I also had to do a Conti um footage and you're passing to the interviews like the tv booth yeah <laughs> it was so open you were like you had your eyes like coming out of your face and i was yeah, like was up. and he was like ah, <laughs> <laughs> what just happened just that took me it was pretty funny so you try to like keep it together for the other interviews in front of me like what just happened <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was pretty hilarious um well moving on from worlds you qualified Tense in Lunaviel, but yeah, unfortunately, yeah, you crashed uh, in finals in the same corner than Benoit, and bro- you broke some bones in your wrist. Um, what hurt more, the injury or the races passing by where you didn't get to wear the jerseys? Yeah, it was a really strange feeling to be honest, because obviously I just come off the back of such a massive <laughs> accomplishment. It's sort of I still had a massive smile on my face, even though. I broke my arm and my wrist. I was <laughs> still yeah. on such a high from that that, yeah, it was a strange feeling. Um, definitely gutted to not be able to wear the jersey for the rest of the year. And it felt like almost that confidence to know that I could do it was there. And then to crash like that, it was like, you know, <laughs> I made a little mistake just before that corner. And no. it was such a fine little rut. And it was obviously so slippy that you had to be pinpoint perfect. And yeah, I just got a little bit offline. and but what wasn't even a big crash. Um, you finished, didn't you? Yeah, I rode to the bottom. Yeah. And as soon as I got to the bottom, I said to Lloyd, something is really broken in my arm. <laughs> <laughs> and where, where did you end up? Didn't you end up like, were you 23rd or something like that? Uh, no, I think I was like 29th, maybe 30th. Still, yeah, still top 30. Yeah, I got some points from it. That was what I was worried about just for the overall, but yeah, yeah and that didn't actually matter in the end. <laughs> no. 
Yeah, for sure. And Benoit, Benoit's crashes in snowshoe and broke his skateboard. It was also like one of the smallest crash. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was such a such an annoying little crash. And I think yeah, as you said, Benoit crashed there. I think Oshin crashed there as well. It was like mm-hmm. it was just yeah, claiming people, but also really frustrating because. I try not to crash with one, does it? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think that was actually my second or third crash in the whole year, whole off season. Oh, no. Um, so, yeah, I was pretty devastated to only have that amount of crashes and then come out with something that I couldn't race for the rest of the season. So, yeah, it was pretty, pretty frustrating. Um, how's the wrist doing now, Will? Wrist is um, it's getting there. Slow going. It's probably my, well, I guess it's normal for a lot of people, but. It's the first ever surgery and things like that I've ever had. So it's been a bit of a learning curve, really. Um, and actually trying to take that forced rest when I knew I couldn't do anything was pretty tough. Um, I almost had to use that as my off-season. So I spent most of my off-season in the cast, but we're out the other side now. And I've got my, I, I hope it's my final checkup x-ray tomorrow, actually. So yeah, it's uh, it's getting there now. Fingers crossed then for the... For yeah, the thank you. Thank you very um, much. So obviously now you have the jersey and you won the race and you won the best one, basically. Um, the next target would be obviously for you to want to win a World Cup. Um, Fort William is round one next year. Yeah. So is that on your mind or? Uh, well, I did think about it the other day, actually. I think it's going to be very strange rocking up to Fort William again after last year. <laughs> <laughs> well, what will be last year. Um, yeah, it's going to be pretty strange but yeah i'm super super keen already really for that first race um so having one on home soil and obviously you've you've done um more laps um in fort williams than anywhere else in the world do you think it would be worse for you to like try to get more laps on on auto world cup tracks do you think that's something that helps like not only on your riding but also mentally like to save your energy like you said yeah massively i think I know some people don't actually like to do it, but I think for me, it sort of takes those um, like first runs of learning the track and getting to know it. It takes them out. And for me, it almost, I've finished a lot of races previously and I'm thinking like, if I think I had one more day, I feel like I could do so much better. Okay. So just having those two days previously or okay. one, two days, three days, however many you do ride it, for me, I think it does help massively. Yeah. And even just like getting to know the, uh, like the area and like how to get on the gondola and just Bitmer. stupid things like that. Bitmer. I think it's just all like a lot more familiar. So I think it's, yeah, it does become easier if you've, you've been there before. Would you say you're a rider that just uh, also needs a little bit more time to like get up to speed? Cause I know Bernard has been the opposite problem. He needs to pace himself to peak on the right time. Cause before and he was just peaking on time training and meaning time training and then going down in comparison to the riders, you know? Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Sometimes time training is my fastest run of the weekend. Sometimes, like, I'm in Belenza, Heidi, a few years ago. I was, like, top five, maybe, in time training. I was like, right, this is, we're on for good one this weekend. And then I ended up, like, in the 20s. And I was like, I just can't go faster than that first day. So, (laughs) yeah, I think it was, yeah, definitely trying to build my pace over the weekend and not try and just go absolutely mental first day. Yeah, for sure. Especially with summit as well. You get, if you get too fast too quickly, you're going to lose a lot of energy and not peak. Yeah, anymore. exactly. Um, so about next season, there's just seven rounds. DH, um, were you disappointed when you saw that? 
Um, yeah, I think it was a little bit. I think, um, well, from my understanding, it was we was going to be getting more rounds almost every year. Yeah. I think obviously last year we had about eight and nine, well, with world champs. So yeah. I thought it was sort of going in that that direction, but yeah, a little bit frustrating. But I guess it's only one rest less race, so it's not the end of the world. But yeah, it's a bit of a shame, I think. Um, thoughts on semi final? Semi final. Um, <laughs> Martin, Martin yeah, we're all uh, in on that, so you yeah, can we go to, all in as well. We've <laughs> pretty much everybody on the podcast this evening, including Martin, has burnt semi-finals. So don't worry, you can speak for <laughs> yeah. it. I love that was brilliant. How you 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 made it sound as though it was the first time anyone has ever asked you for your opinion on semi-finals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So politically correct, semi-finals. Oh, I've never thought about it. Yes. <laughs> what is that? Um, no. So obviously, as a racer and a mindset point of view. I try to look at it as a positive. I think I'm normally quite a consistent rider and my riding's not like a, I say one run wonder, but I just won world champ. So maybe that's, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's wrong. <laughs> so yeah, I, I didn't actually mind the semi-final and I think we train all winter for it. So how many runs do we do on the clock in the winter? We do more than two in a day. So I was just like, yeah, let's send it. But, now that it's not there, I don't mind, to be honest. I think you can manage it better throughout the day when it's just uh, just the final. But then alternatively saying that, it did take your mind off things because you were straight down from practice. You get your kit ready, you go up for semi, do that, and then get your kit ready again and use that final. And before you knew it, the day's like over. So that side of it, I didn't mind. I quite liked. There was a lot of, um, a lot of racing, I guess. But yeah, it was pretty hectic. When when you were actually injured, um, did you did you watch the races? Oh yeah, I watched it all. <laughs> so, <laughs> Start to so what was your what's your point of view as a spectator from eleven to preaching three thirty four in the afternoon in front of your TV? <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I had nothing to do. Put it that way. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was long. It was yeah. quite cool. Like yeah. obviously a lot of racing, watching things, but. Yeah, I think maybe it did dilute the finals a little bit. Yeah. And it was quite hard to follow what actually went on. Like, if you used to say, like, where people actually came in the semi-final, where they came in the final, it was quite hard yeah. to, um, to yeah, like, keep an eye on everyone, really. So, yeah, it was it was good to watch. How far into it was it before Cara started nagging you to go and do something else? No, nah, to be fair, I was at home after my injury. Cara was, <laughs> Cara was around flying around the world. Oh, nice. <laughs> Really. Yeah. So we just had I just saw the news that there's um there's a hard line in Tasmania. Is that right? Are you yeah. uh heading out for that? Um still on the fence. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a tough one with the hard line. I feel like I always end up doing it, but I'm a bit cautious going in. I think with a race like that, you need to either be like, right, I'm going there and I'm sending it, or I'm gonna leave it alone. Yeah. I think if you've got that like unsure mindset and you're just like getting through the weekend this is quite tough um and obviously it's super dangerous so many massive jumps but yeah yes i would like to do it definitely have you done a complete race run at harline at all yeah yeah so i was third i think it was my second year doing it maybe see i've been on the podium there before and then qualified good always like third fourth something like that and then race run just silly crashes I think it's such a weird, because it is a race. Yeah. You sat at the top, you don't do any warm-up, really. No <laughs> one's got a turbo. You sat there watching everyone else go down. 
and you're about to hit the biggest jumps you ever hit in your life. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite a weird one because obviously it is a race at the end of the day, but just to get down in itself is an achievement. So it's um, yeah, it's a weird one, hard one. Yeah, so maybe wait for a couple of, like um, footage of the Tasmanian track, and then you can decide, I guess. Yeah, I see, I see some pics. See, judge it, scope it out, and then uh, I'll say, yep, I'm keen. Do you have any news of G after his Rampage crash? Yeah, so I actually seen G today. Um, he's doing okay, I think. Obviously, it was a absolute massive crash. Um, massive. Yeah, that guy's absolutely crazy. What he said the next day or whenever, when he found out the injuries, it's like, yeah, should be a bit of rest and I should be back back in a few weeks. He said, chill. <laughs> chill for a few weeks and it's like what i think it was the same day i actually posted a photo of my like uh surgery on my wrist and i was like i might delete that i just feel like <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love that yeah, i've got some minor injuries just some fractured vertebrae and a fractured skull yeah he's something like <laughs> minor that. Yeah, injuries he is he's an absolute mad. mad dog yeah. yeah he's he's the hardest man i know i think yeah jesus wild man Indeed. So just one final question from me. We we have three riders in the UK who are all of a similar age and you're all pretty good mates, I think. And there's you, obviously there's Joe and Matt yeah. Walker. Um, one seems to push forward, Matt, Matt Junior World Champion, Joe Silver, Matt 2020 World Cup Champion and won a World Cup. Joe won seeding in Valdisol and was riding the crest of a wave before his elbow injury. Now you've probably jumped past both of them. I know you're all mates, but you're also competitive. Did you ever feel like you were getting a bit left behind? Um, no, not really. No, I never thought of it like that. I think, obviously, I think Matt's super good at the racing side of it. Yeah. And I think his mentality is really, really good. I think, um, yeah, and obviously when we ride with Matt in the winter and things like that, and ride, I ride with Joe loads as well in the winter. Yeah. And it's all, we're all like quite, quite similar and, similar in pace and things like that so it's like when you get to the race i'm like well it's almost confidence inspiring when i seen someone like matt win i was like well i know i can do it it's just actually doing it and that is the hardest thing yeah they are a year younger than you yeah so matt and joe are both one year younger than me yeah that's right yeah yeah well look thanks for making the time to come on the show congratulations on an epic achievement it, it was really fantastic to see you win win worlds and Hope you're back on the bike real soon and, and all the best for next season. Oh, thank you very much. And yeah, good to speak to you all. And yeah, hopefully catch you out on the bike soon. Yeah, oh. cheers, Charlie. Good to see you. Cheers. Nice thank you. I just want to close out the show with a get well soon to Alistair McLennan, who's one of the fastest Grand Vets in the world. He had a, a big one up at the Nevis Range a few weeks back and he's in hospital in Glasgow at the moment. So he'll fast, mate, and hope you're back riding soon. Thanks to the wonderful sponsors of the show, Hope Technology, JTEC Suspension, Revolution Bike Park, Ride Southern Spain, Schwalbe and SingletrackWorld.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'm sure you know what to do by now. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you've got a sec, please drop us a review. Alternatively, please give us a follow on Instagram at Making Up The Numbers Racing or Facebook.com slash Making Up The Numbers. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more very soon. This has been the Mammoth Production for Making Up the Numbers. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.